Welcome to New York's Finest, Retired and Unfiltered Podcast. The mission of this podcast is to explore the life and experiences of those who at one time held a front row ticket to the greatest show on earth, policing the streets of New York City. This show hosts a wide variety of guests from all walks of life and professions, but remains centered around introducing retired members of the NYPD to our audience while having real unfiltered discussions. Please tune in each week and like and subscribe to hear true crime stories and opinions on past and present events like you've never heard them before. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. On this episode, I'll be interviewing retired Lieutenant Special Assignment Eric Dim. Eric served this nation honorably as a United States Marine. He was deployed to Iraq in the years immediately following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. In January 2004, Eric joined the NYPD, where he served 18 years and nine months. Eric rose through the ranks of the department, and as he rose, he always remained a very active street cop. In my opinion, he is one of the best and most dedicated to ever do it. Eric entered a proactive police department and was trained in the broken windows theory of policing, which is the most effective form of policing the nation has ever seen. This style of policing transformed New York City from a city of crime to the safest big city in the world. During Bill de Blasio's eight-year mayoral administration and now into Eric Adams, the NYPD shifted away from the style of policing, and many street cops like myself reassessed and went away from the necessary work of chasing armed, violent, repeat offenders and running into the unknown all night, every night. Many of us went into either long-term investigative roles or administrative positions. Eric, however, did not. Many of you will know Eric's name as he has come under fire many times throughout his career, and even upon announcing his retirement, which sparks a series of news reports, articles, videos, and social media posts. Most of these titled, The Most Complained About Cop Retires, Avoiding Penalties. Eric does, in fact, have the most complaints in NYPD history. Eric had 115 allegations made against him, with 56 substantiated, and New York City has paid out over $1 million in damages from lawsuits filed against Eric. Although that sounds excessive, there is no way to currently be an effective, proactive NY police, NYPD police officer and not be sued or receive complaints. The elected progressives and their appointing commissioners, as well as city council and state assembly, have ushered in an anti-police, pro-criminal legislation and policies, which has placed NYPD officers at a severe and dangerous disadvantage to criminals. In more ye- recent years, we have seen the effects of this, as New York City has once beca- be- uh, again became a city of crime, and even more good, moral, and proactive police officers have taken a step back from doing this necessary work. In regard to all of these allegations, Eric has never received discipline from the NYPD. All of his substantiated allegations and discipline have come by the way of the CCRB, or the Civilian Complaint Review Board. During this interview, we will go in-depth into these processes in which police officers are often found guilty by the CCRB by acting in accordance with the law, the rules, and regulations of the NYPD. We will discuss the reasoning they are often not disciplined by the NYPD during the same concurrent investigation. NYPD officers 
often receive substantiated allegations for doing what we pay them to do, train them to do, and ask them to do. Eric's career has not been given the proper attention it deserves. Eric is a highly decorated officer. In 2018, he received a citation of merit from the then Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz for his actions in response to a shooting of a 29-year-old father and his five-year-old son, who were both shot in the stairwell of the Butler Houses in the Bronx. Upon arrival, Eric found the five-year-old shot in the arm and bleeding. Eric removed his own belt and used it as a tourniquet, saving the young boy's life. It was an absolute honor and privilege to serve alongside him for the brief time I had the opportunity to early on in both of our careers. Eric helped mentor me and a lot of other young men and women in the 120 precinct during Operation Impact. It's a true blessing to have him as a guest on this show and to have him share his life, his career, and his experience. Eric will give us a front row seat into policing into modern day progressive New York City. Without further ado, I welcome to New York's finest retired and unfiltered podcast, the great and powerful retired lieutenant, Eric Dim. All right, everybody. Welcome. Eric Dim, retired NYPD lieutenant special assignment. Put your seatbelts on. All right, Eric. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it, my brother. Um, if you could just get us up to speed on you, man, if you could just tell us a little about yourself, where you grew up. Oh, that's great. Well, actually, I grew up mostly in Staten Island and Brooklyn. Uh, and I actually, I actually lived in the same area that we patrolled when we were rookies in the one to one precinct. I actually grew up in Stapleton, which is the irony to this, uh, this whole thing is that that was a majority minority neighborhood. Uh, but I did have a great childhood, uh, and like I said, growing up in Staten Island, Brooklyn, I grew up mostly in blue-collar neighborhoods. I myself actually grew up in a, in a poor family. My father, may he bless his soul, he died during COVID. But he worked very hard. He worked for Sickle Oil Company. And unfortunately, they had to relocate. And he had to relocate to Texas. The economy had, had really tanked. And so when my father came back, he never recovered. So I grew up poor, but I grew up happy. I had a great childhood. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, but things were much different. I was out all day on bicycles. I had a job as early as 11 years old. I had two paper outs. And my father, for side work, he had an ice cream truck. And as early as five years old, they used to go out in the ice cream truck with him in Staten Island and Brooklyn. And I learned social skills and business transactions and how to interact with people. And I was selling ice cream. And so I learned a good worth ethic. And uh, thanks to my father for that. But I had a great childhood. I was, I was gone all day. My mother didn't know where I was. She would scream outside. It was dark and just come home for dinner. And I was out on bicycles all day. And it was you know, it was rough and tumble and, uh, but it was great. It was a great childhood. I, 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 I was very happy. I didn't have much money, but I had, I didn't have, I didn't have many possessions, but I have great memories. So I always thought possessions are temporary and memories are forever. Yeah, no, absolutely not. New York's a beautiful place to grow up, bro. I, I loved growing up there. Same thing. I grew up poor. I, I didn't know I was poor. I didn't even, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I, I, had, <laughs> I had no idea. Thank God my brother, uh, he's eight years older than me. And I had, his bike became my bike. This shirt became my shirt. So it was all hand-me-downs. But for me, it was new, and I was happy. Yeah, no, and that's the beautiful thing about New York, right? You interact with all these different cultures. You see every everybody and everything, and you learn how to, to make your way in the world. It's it's honestly, it's the best education anybody could ever get, you know? Um, and, and I, I kind of, I hate that I'm in Florida a little bit for that fact that I took my kids out. Even though they are exposed to it, I do come back every now and then. 
Um, but I just, you know, I, I always say it's the best education in the world. You know, I, it really is. It's, it just opens your eyes. Um, what, what made you, you went into the Marines, uh, you know, what, what made you want to do that? Was, was your father in the military? Well, it's as you said, I actually, um, I have a, a deity, a lifelong, uh, family of service. I actually have great uncles that were in Pearl Harbor. My father served in the army as well. Obviously he was drafted, you know, during the Vietnam era. Uh, so I, myself, it was, I guess it was a deity. I, I always, but at the same time, I always felt it was a calling. Even as a kid, I remember as early as third grade, and I still have the picture. Looking back, I had a gold camouflage on. My face was painted at a Halloween party, and it was just. And, and I love challenges, so I, I do. I was always drawn to uh, the military, but I always thought there was two types of kids, and there was kids that you know they wanted to be in the military and they exercised and went to different recruiters and see what the options were, and then there was the other kid that was me. I just wanted to be a marine. I didn't care if they paid me. I didn't care what the job was. I watched these shows and, and commercials. I just wanted to be a Marine. And that was it. <laughs> no, no, that's great. That, that's, that, that's awesome, man. That's, so you were like, you were acting out your childhood dream, basically. Like you, when you were a kid, you wanted to be a Marine. Forever. That's, that's all I dreamed of. Really? So was, was it anything? What, what, what do you, what do you, like, did you think it came from your uncles or was it just, was it just in you from everything? GI Joe, like the toys you play with, like, what do you know? Or do you know like what yeah, the so, it was? Well, that was part of it. And I would always find pictures of my father and his army service, but I, I just was drawn to it. Uh, you know, I always loved GI Joe and He-Man and, uh, you know, he's the guy in charge and taking on challenge. And I love the challenges. And I always saw myself throughout my life being drawn to it and you know i was always told i uh, don't do it don't do it you know and it's actually the best thing i ever did so i i have no regrets uh it's awesome my, my father was a vietnam vet he served two tours in vietnam he he actually has two purple hearts uh he passed too but uh he was dead against me going in and and I kind of adhered to his advice just because I saw like the rough road he had after it. So I give you a lot of credit, man. That that's that's very brave. You know, your dad served in a, in, a, in a rough war. You know, that was that was rough on a lot of those guys. A lot of those guys didn't come back right, uh, or if they even came back at all. You know, and uh, so that that's definitely brave on your part. Would uh, I know you served in, in Iraq in uh, in two thousand three? Uh, throughout your whole experience in the Marines. What would you say your biggest takeaway was, like serving in the military? Like, what's your biggest takeaway? Uh, that, that, that question is too easy. Camaraderie is number one. And to this day, I have lifelong friends from the Marines that I still talk to on a daily basis. And I can't call them friends. They're brothers. And even uh, recently, we actually had a 20-year reunion with some of the guys I went to boot camp with. In January 2000, I went to boot camp. So January 2020, we had a reunion uh, with some of the guys, we actually met up in Times Square. We got on a bus. We went to the Marine Corps Museum in Quantico, Virginia. And it was 20 years that I didn't see some of these guys. And some of the guys I did stay in touch with. But it was like we saw each other yesterday. And it was unbelievable. The, t- the memories, the ties are forever. So the camaraderie, is, it, this is family forever. And it's the best memory I have. No, that's great. That that's unbelievable. I, I, I mean, you, you you know, you went in for the right reasons, right? That was a, that was a rough time to go into. That was right after nine eleven. That was a scary time in our country. That was a scary time in the world, right? And like, and and you jumped in, and not only did you jump in, you went into the Marines. You went into probably what some would say is, is the hardest of all the roads you could have chose in military life. Not and not and that's not a knock on anybody else that served in in any other branch, but that is. 
what is known, right? The Marines are the front line. They go in first, right? So you choose that. What makes you start to think about pursuing a career in the NYPD? It's funny that you say that. So that was all that was on my mind was becoming a Marine. And it was never on my radar to become a cop. I was always into the, some of the cop shows. And I always found it exciting. But I figured I'd have a lifelong uh, life of service in the Marines. I even went to officer candidate school. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I want to honor graduate. So that was my path. I wanted to be a Marine. I wanted to be an officer. But my father always encouraged serving, uh, you know, blue collar work as well. And he always thought that city work was was a great path and you have a pension and uh, it's a great way of service to your local community. So back in 2000, right before I went to the Marine Corps, my father had brought home a bunch of applications and he made me take the NYPD test. Um, so once I got back from Iraq, I was ready to go get commissioned to be a Lieutenant in the Marine Corps. I already finished all the training, uh, but my father and myself spoke said, listen, you already served your country. Why don't you take this opportunity? Cause it was about to expire. The test is good for five years. Why don't you try this? And I said, you know what? I started to do some research in the NYPD. I always like to read. And it just, the glamour started to develop. And the idea of helping my community on that level, especially growing up in New York City, you know what? It was an opportunity I had to take. And I have no regrets. It's the best job ever. Oh, yeah. No, I, I say the same thing. You know, I, I, I think the same thing. It's a... Uh... You know, but, you know, I, I always looked up to like guys like you, like you, you did, you came out a little bit earlier than me and, uh, you know, you definitely like were mentoring like us, but like, I came on the job from being a young punk kid, like hanging out to right into being a cop, you know? And I, I was, I was not that I wasn't mature. I was, you know, I, I always had a, a, a good head on my shoulders, but I always looked up to, I like I, I did look up to you specifically, but I looked up to military uh, thank you, guys. brother. No, but I looked up to the military guys too, because you guys were really mature at that point, right? Like you guys already served this country, you already lived on your own. I lived on my own at a young age, but it was a little different. I didn't have the the, the structure and and the true maturity of you guys like that that you are. You guys were like when I, I still felt I was becoming a man, I looked at you guys and I was like, yeah, these guys are men, you know, especially you, Eric. I'm not going to lie. You know, you, you were a level-headed guy. You were a kind guy. And, yeah, thank you. And you took time with the guys that, you know, maybe you could have you snuffed at because you had more time on the job or you were more respected. You were respected by the bosses at that point and your peers and all that stuff. Uh, so I always thank you for that. Um, what, what would you say? My pleasure. No, no, thank you, bro. I seriously, I really mean that. Um, but what would you say was your approach to police work? Like going in, you come out, you come out. Now you served in the military. You're, now you're a young cop in the NYPD. What's your approach at that point? What's your like ethos? Like, what do you want to do? Well, I'm glad that you asked that. that. That's interesting. So, as I said, growing up in New York City, I had an opportunity. I was the company sergeant in the police academy. So, for people who don't know, that means that when you're in the police academy. Uh, even though you're a new recruit, just like everyone else, but if you have a military background or some type of background that uh, would demonstrate that you have some leadership ability, they may be with the company sergeant, which means you're basically in charge of the other recruits and you're kind of the liaison between yourself and the instructors. It required some more work, but with that gave the opportunity that when I was finished, I had the opportunity to pick my own command where I wanted to work. So I could have went anywhere. So I said, you know what? I grew up mostly in the one to old precinct in Stapleton which I said was a rough and tumble neighborhood, majority minority. And I said, you know what? What better place to work 
than a place I grew up. So I picked the one to a prison. And, and so I already had an understanding of the culture of the neighborhood. There's great people there. And that's what people don't understand is, unfortunately, when you're doing police work, you don't get much of an opportunity to interact with the great people. You interact, interact, you interact with the small percentage of people that live there or those that are transient through that area that cause havoc for the people that live there and really, you know, damper and, and really increase crime. So those are the people that I want to interact with so that I could help that community because I saw the good in that community and I got an opportunity to see the bad as well. And fortunately, the good does, you know, overpower the, the bad in that area. But I wanted to help. And that was my first opportunity. And, and my approach was to understand the neighborhood, understand what, what the needs of the residents, because policing is not one size fits all. Every neighborhood has a different culture, a different vibe, and the needs for that area are, you know, definitely uh, require different attention based on the culture, the, the type of people that live there, the type of work that they do. Is it a metropolis? Is it suburban? So every area requires different type of policing. So I was super excited to work in a 120 precinct. Great opportunity. Yeah, no, 120, it's like the 120 is like a, 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 is like a myriad of all of the boroughs combined. You have residential, you have industrial, you have uh, NYCHA buildings, you have, you know, it's it's so diverse, the landscape in the 120 precinct. And, wh- and when I went there, I remember an older cop telling me, he goes, listen, you're going to learn a lot there. He goes, that, that place you're going to see everything. You're going to see everything that this job has to offer. And, you know, a couple of weeks in, <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> Turned out to be very true. I was like, wow. I was like, you know, we really did. You know, it 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 was a great learning experience for me. Um, 100%. So, um, can you just walk us through, like, like your career? You start off in the 120, like, and, and, and just tell us, like, what you did through being a cop and then how, when you got promoted and stuff like that. And, 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 like, you know, just a brief overview of yourself, like, if you were given a resume. Sure. Well, like I said, I had the opportunity immediately uh, upon graduating from the police academy, which was now uh, J- uh, July of 2004. So I, immediately I went into what was called the impact zone back then, right? We had the impact zone where cops walked on a beat when they were brand new and they flooded high crime areas, areas that had propensity for violence. And there, I mean, even with the background that I had, this was a new opportunity and new beginnings. And uh, I was wide eyed open. I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And I had an opportunity to walk a foot post in the Stapleton houses, which I really think was a great prerequisite to the, my career as enhanced time, because I spent most of my career in housing. So even though I was in the one to one precinct, I spent most of it in housing. So that, that really was the trajectory for my career. And I, I started to work, walk a beat. And I don't know if you remember, I had an opportunity once the impact zone was done after six months, I had an opportunity to now join the patrol guys and go in a car. Yep. But I really enjoyed having the opportunity to mentor you guys as you got in with my life experience of leadership and, and, and in the Marine Corps. And I really enjoyed working with you guys. So I stayed. I stayed walking a beat. And sometimes they gave us a car. So I felt like the big fish in a little pond. But it was a great time. And watching you guys grow was awesome. And I learned so much. That is a great precinct. Like you said, it has a mix of everything. It's really diversified. It's, you know, I, I'm sure people have a, a, a certain uh, perspective of what they believe Staten Island is. Uh, because it is the forgotten borough. But it's very diversified. And it's a great pr- place to learn police work. And I, I sure did. Would, uh, 
what made you when did you realize you were going to become a boss like what, what how 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 much time did you have on that Paul? was that something you did right away like as soon as you were eligible like when did when did you decide you were going to go that route and why did you decide that well I, I i i never believed that you should put all eggs in one basket so i i the opportunity came early i was extremely lucky i had three years on the job and there was an opportunity the test came it was february of 2007 so I had to give myself the opportunity to take the test. I don't know if that's what I wanted. I didn't know if I wanted to do that or become a detective investigator, but I knew the option was there. So I took the test and uh, I actually did extremely well. Thank God, you know, I studied hard. So I had an opportunity. I got promoted as early as possible to wait two years, but five years on the job. And I was super excited to take it. So I read all kinds of leadership books, plus my experience with the Marine Corps. And I was super excited to take on this challenge. And I just said to myself, I don't want to be just a boss because anybody could do that, but I want to be a leader. I want to lead the best men and women. And, and, and I really had that opportunity. So the next stop for me, I went to uh, I had an opportunity to pick where I wanted to go. I had a great relationship with my commanding officers. So they gave me the opportunity to go into housing. So I went to PSA four as a sergeant. And there I started in January of 2009. And I actually got a great story. If, if you don't mind telling oh, me. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've always, Absolutely. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah. Tell us. But uh, where is PSA 4 before you tell the story? Sure, tell tell actually, the audience. It's, it's in the Lower East Side. It covers Alphabet City. It covers areas of Chinatown. We also cover a precinct in the West Side, which is the 10th precinct. So, so all of Lower Manhattan and covering NYCHA, you know, New York City Housing Authority yep. areas. So, yeah. But so it, was, it was great. Yeah, <laughs> so, sorry. But I'm used to bumps in the road and obstacles, but it's kind of funny. So, I went to. It, this doesn't happen often, but I went in January of 2009 to what we called at the time BMOC. And it, it was uh, an acronym that stood for the beginner module uh, officers course, which was to be a sergeant. And halfway through, um, we were informed that due to budget cuts that they weren't able to promote us. So we finished the course, but I went back to the one to o as a cop. So if you can imagine how these guys broke my balls. So I just had to wait. <laughs> it, it was hysterical. So I'll never forget. You know, good Sergeant Mill I worked with. He gave me his his uh, his duplicate shield. They put it on my chest, and they wrote on my name tag, almost Sergeant. And I worked <laughs> the desk and things like that. I went back to my locker. I had Corporal Chevrons glued to my locker. It was hysterical. But I really felt bad for the guys that had burnt their bridges. They were crying because they knew they had to go back to a place where they, you know, where yeah, they yeah. weren't wanted anymore. So luckily, after five weeks, they called us back. I got promoted, and I went to... Uh, PSA four, uh, and as a sergeant, and there again, I, just I've been blessed in my career. Within a few months, uh, they needed someone to fill the crime sergeant spot, and the the guys really advocated for me. And even though I was new, they gave me the opportunity. So I, I was I, I couldn't believe it that they actually gave me the opportunity with five years on the job, and to be an anti crime sergeant. So I, I was a total bliss. It was amazing, and I learned. So much. And I, I, I got I was surrounded by the best men and women on this job, the best men and women on this job. Unfortunately, we've been disbanded. We're part of the anti-crime unit. I mean, these guys you talk about community service go out each and every day and put themselves on the line for people they don't know in plain clothes, trying to grab illegal firearms, grab people for robberies. We're talking about the worst of the worst to help the people so that they can live in a great society. How was uh, yeah, absolutely. That's what anti-crime does. I mean, that just just pulling back on that, 
you'll never, well, like I said, we'll never know the effects. We'll never know the effects of two things. Stop, uh, stopping to uh, enforcing minor crimes and the presence that plainclothes units provided throughout the city, the omnipresence that, that, that criminals felt. And even good people felt that, hey, the police are everywhere and I better not step out of line or I'm going to get arrested and I'm going to go to jail. You know, we, we got to stay within societal norms. And, and we, we've, we've lost all that omnipresence. Tell us a little bit about transition. I know you, like, you had some leadership skills. Um, you know, you, you, like, you, you know, you had some leadership skills from the military and then again, even as a cop, right? You kind of were almost like a sergeant or a corporal in, in your role, right? Like you were. So, but how still, how was that transition for you to, to become a boss? Like, you know, you, you said you learned a lot, you know, I know, I know you love crime and I definitely want to get into all of that, like what you did and all that. But how do you think that transition was from a, a, a cop to a supervisor? Well, I, I'm glad that you asked that. I actually, uh, I found myself met with a lot of resistance on this job and I love this job. I'm not trying to knock it, but I think it's somewhere that we really need to explore and really need to teach leadership on this job because I'm a firm believer, and I learned this in the Marine Corps, that for some people, leadership may be a born attribute, but for most, it's a leadership, it's a skill that we learn over time through books, through trial and tribulations. And it's a skill that we learn. And what I found is that, unfortunately, with this job, I think they try to perpetuate and really push our bosses to lead from the rear. And what I learned in the Marine Corps is that the most effective leaders lead from the front. And that's what I did. I, le- I led from the front. And I found I was met with some resistance. But at the same token, I know that they appreciate it. Because I think a lot of times the NYPD uh, is fearful that if their leaders are in the limelight, in the forefront, that they'll get some backlash. And unfortunately, we need our leaders in front. We need our boots on the ground, our frontline leaders who can really – get the information out to our leaders at the top. They're the boots on the ground and they can tell them exactly what's going on. We need our leaders at the front. And also what I learned from, I read numerous books and I, I continue to read them. I, Jocko Womack is, uh, I'm a big fan of him. I read uh, Extreme Ownership, the Dichotomy of Leadership. I, I read numerous leaderships, uh, leadership books in the Marine Corps. And what I learned, and especially also uh, Colin Powell, his book as well. But what I learned is that Unfortunately, this job tends to micromanage and included civilian complaint review board. They micromanage. And when we micromanage an organization, we lose the ability to be creative, to have creativity because our, our rank and file is scared to think outside the box because they're more scared of, of the repercussions and the punitive uh, culture that has been built from the civilian complaint and also from the job. So that's something I need to change. And, I found in the transition, I really enjoyed being not just a leader, but more of a mentor. And it was, it was most gratification where I watched myself get young cops and watch them grow into better men, watch them grow into better cops and see the observational skills that they learned over time. And some of these guys and, and women were amazing. And the, the, the eye that they developed and what they can see that most people don't see is super impressive. It really is. Absolutely. Tell us about that eye a little bit. Tell us about like anti-crime. Tell us about like what you did there. What was your, like, what was it, what was a daily routine for you and your guys? Like what, what, what would, you know, what would you do? Like prior to going out, getting dressed and then going out, like what, what was your main focus? You know? Well, it's, it's funny you say that. So 
before I go into actually the research and analysis of it, but anytime I would get a new a new cop into the anti-crime unit, someone that transitioned from the conditions unit or patrol, the first thing I would teach them is that when you're doing policing, that you have to form a baseline of what your day should look like. So we would, everything was specifically targeted in a sense that, let's say I'm working in my last command, which is PSA 7 in the South Bronx. And let's say we're having a condition of a rash of shootings in a particular area. In that area, that cop, along with his team, has to know everything that goes on there. They need to know the residents that live there. They need to know the actual community, the streets, what these buildings look like. Uh, they need to know the entire culture of that, <coughs> excuse me, of that area. And, and that's important because when you go out as an anti-crime cop, you have to form a baseline of what it should look like that day. And l- let me correlate it to this. So I used to tell the new cops, for instance, let's say, for rhetorically speaking, let's say you're assigned today to Yankee Stadium. And let's say it's June 25th, uh, 2022. It's 90 degrees. You're going to be at 166 and River Street at the gate of Yankee Stadium. What should you, in your mind, before you get there, what should your vision of what your post should look like? That's a baseline. So if I was that cop, I would assume that I'm going to go there. I'm going to see people wearing Yankee T-shirts. I'm going to see people smiling, probably drinking beer, facing the crowd, facing the game. Now, if I see someone who's walking through wearing boots, uh, tied up really tight, heavy jeans, a heavy hoodie. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to conduct a stop based on that alone, but that doesn't fit the baseline. That is where I would draw my attention to. Also with the knowledge of what's going on in that area, because my cops would do at this time before they go on the street, crime analysis, researching the prior complaints in the past 24 hours of what's going on in that area and also the adjacent areas. Do we have shootings? Do we have a shot spotted detection there? Uh, do we have persons of interest? And so when you form a baseline, that allows your observation skills to really protrude. In addition to that, I would teach them, do you know those old pictures that you would look at and they would Absolutely. be blurry and you have to stare at it and then the image comes out? That's what it is to be an anti-crime cop. So when you're looking at an area and everything's blurry, that person of interest, that person is going to be drawn to you because they're going to be an eyesore and stick out. And from there... We could build on it and we could look to, we look for behavioral indicators that mimic someone that may be carrying a firearm, someone that is, is casing people to commit a robbery. And, there's, and these observation skills are built over time. They're skills that you learn. And that's what the public doesn't understand. What the public doesn't understand about an anti-crime cop is they may see things, a thousand things in a flash, in an eighth of a second, that a person with an untrained eye would not see. And so I can correlate that to... I don't know. Have you ever heard of the book Blink written by Malcolm Gladwell? Not a fan of Malcolm Gladwell, but yes, I, I know the book. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But it, it's a great book because I always, I try to encourage my cops to read that book. Yeah. And what you learn in that book is they talk about the unconscious competence. Yep. And they would say, for instance, if you see a guy, he's batting and, uh, and before that bat hits the ball, most professional ball players will look at it and go, that's a home run. That's a third base. And how do they know that? Because the person even hit the ball yet. It's because they've seen it so many times. And their unconscious competence processed a thousand things. And, and yet, they can't explain it. So that's why I would say there's a difference between when it comes to professionals, the player and the coach. Some people are amazing players. You could be a professional basketball player, but that doesn't mean you're going to be a good coach. Because what goes on your unconscious competence, you might not be able to explain to people. 
And so that's why it's tough for an anti-crime cop. You see a thousand things, if an eighth of a second, you conduct that stop, that reasonable suspicion, that, that level three stop, that leads to a firearm. And it's really hard sometimes to transcribe that to your peers and audience and also district attorney for where this goes to prosecution. Because with an untrained eye, they don't understand. They're looking for these big movements. And that's not really how it works. It's very subtle movements that happen an eighth of a second that a trained eye would see that they would not. And these are skills you learn as an anti-crime cop. And they're so effective. I, I'm a firm believer there's no machine out there that can compare to the eye of an anti-crime cop. Dude, I'm just going to tell you right now, you need to write that down. And <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. You need to write that Thank down. You. No, no, I'm not kidding. Because you really do. You, you, you just described perfectly what, what it is to be hypersensitive as a police officer. Like what, what goes on through the mind of a cop, you know. Currently today, we keep hearing that, you know, uh, black and brown kids are stopped at a disproportionate uh, rate of white kids and this and that and all of this nonsense. And I always go back to cops criminally profile. Cops go into the area, the crimes are being committed at the times that they're being committed, and they look for the people from the study, from the study of the complaints that were taken, from the description of the perpetrators that were taken, from the videos observed, from the mounts of witnesses. They take all of that, they put it together, they go out on the street during that time, and they look for slight differences in that community. And and you're right, some of those, some of those guys with, with the sharpest eye don't have the sharpest tongue, so they're not able to articulate properly what happened. Bingo, one hundred percent. What happened properly? Because you need to be to be a cop. You need to be everything. You need to be a you. You need to be the the, the most perfect human being that ever walked the face of this earth. And, <laughs> and, and nobody could ever live up to that. Not even the best cop. You know, uh, you, you, you're one of the best cops to ever do it. But not Thank even you. you. It's Thank you. you. But you, not even you. Nobody could do it because it's an impossible, impossible job. You but, are right. It really is, but but to be able to say what happened to someone that does not understand, that does not see, you know, because I always say once you see, you can't unsee, and you know, you 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 could I could pick out cops when I go out to dinner. I could see I could see who a cop is just when I walk down the block. You know, I we know each other right off the bat, right? It's like you oh, see yeah. the guy walking across the street, he gives you the head nod. You're looking at him, you're like, oh, everyone's observing. So that that was that was a beautiful description. I, I thank I, you. I, I appreciate it. No, no, that, that really was. It, if it, I could it, elaborate, yeah, one other, keep going. One other, one other thing that I used to tell the guys, and, and, and there is a dichotomy exactly between the actual practical application of conducting the stops and then being able to actually articulate and sell that. And, and when I say sell that, that's exactly what it is. And I used to correlate to this, to the, uh, the guys that work for me and say, listen, you have to understand that when you're explaining the story, it has to, it has to sound credible and be believable. So for instance, if you were going to the BMW dealership and you said today, I want to buy a car and the salesman that came out said, Hey buddy, listen, that BMW right there, that's for you. And you say, hey, well, tell me about it. Say, I don't really know much about it, but it's good. Would you buy your car from that guy? Absolutely But if not. another guy came out said, right, another guy came out and said, listen, I got this blue BMW. It's a 2022. It's got a rocket engine. It's got leather seats. These are the power windows. It's a V8. You're going to get 42 miles to the gallon. Now that's a guy that you're going to buy the car from. But it's the same thing. You conduct a stop. And if you can't articulate, you can't say, listen, you know, based on the information that I could provide to you, I'm conducting enforcement in this area. And these are the shots 
that we've had. These are the persons of interest. These are the descriptions I have. And based on that, coupled together, led me to observe this particular person of interest. And when this person was walking down the block, they had a sense of purpose. And this is the clothing that they had. This is the eye movement. When you start to, if you're able to provide that information, you're selling a story. It's, it's not a lie, but that's what happened. But for some guys, they're a great player, but they're not a good coach. So they can't convene the information and explain that stop. So for, and I'm not knocking on the district attorneys. It's just, it's not their job. And they can't understand, wait a minute. You know, it's not believable. It's because that cop can't sell that story. It's probably one of the hardest things. It's, I would always find it's easier to actually grab the gun than to actually explain the story and to get the peers to understand what happened and what led us to this person, why it was a good stop, and the behavioral indicators that led us to getting this illegal firearm. It's, it's probably, I think this is going to go on to the end of time. We can, it, it's never going to be 100%. It's just it's it's a very it's a very dynamical uh, operation when you're conducting stops based on observation. Observational skills change constantly and they're just evolving in seconds. The movements of someone evolve and change and a thousand things go through your mind. So I used to teach you guys that you have to kind of reverse engineer the stop. So you conduct the stop and you execute it. And afterwards, we would sit down in a controlled environment and discuss from the actual rest going backwards of how we got to it. And from there, we would actually come up and find the, the, the details to really get this to prosecute. And not because we need to lie, but because we need to public to understand why this is good and how this is going to keep you safe. Oh yeah. I, I know. I, I, I think, I think what you're saying is on point. It's, it's Thank very you. hard to describe to the public and to, and I will knock the district attorneys because now I have a big problem with them. You know, when we were cops and I had to, and I was making arrests and I was going down to the district attorney's office two, three times a week, that was, I had to be able to learn to articulate because at the, but at that time there was a focus on keeping the street safe, putting away repeat of violent offenders Putting away and 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 maybe just teaching a lesson to someone that messed up and a young kid. Oh, it's a dumb young kid. We don't want to throw the book at him. He messed up one time. Let's give him a chance or whatever it was. You know, I think we moved away from that. But you know, but there is something to be said about you know speaking to someone and telling them something about a job that that they can't comprehend. Oh, what? Why'd you punch that guy in the face just because he had a closed hand walking up towards you? <laughs> You know what I mean? And, and like the way, like, how could you, you, you literally have to sell the whole thing. Like you, you do, you have to be able to tell he was a direct threat to me. He was a direct threat to me. He was interfering in police operations that day while we were attempting to effect an arrest. And he approached me in a violent manner and was, and I struck him so that I struck him to not be assaulted myself. To stop the, the oncoming assault. Yes, he didn't hit me first. I hit him first, but he was about to hit me, you know, and, 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 and to sell that to the public or the untrained eye or even to a district attorney, it's almost impossible. Like, no, you just punch that dude for no reason. It's like, no, I, I did. I absolutely did not have a firearm on me. If I get knocked out, chances are people are going to die, including me. Other people, including me, are going to be dead. You know, um, so I, I I appreciate that, and I want I want to get back to all that. Like I want I want to bring that full circle with the DAs later. Um, do you have anything else to add on that one? 
Oh, this could take about this could take months to explain. There's there's, yeah. there's so much, but uh, you nailed it absolutely. And and I think that unfortunately, and I'm sure we'll discuss it when it comes to civilian complaint review board and the public. A lot of it's about optics and the perception of it. And that you know, we really need to have perception of both sides and understand that you know it's sometimes it's not just meets the eye. And that's what I try to explain to people. For instance, we've all heard it before. We see the cops interacting with a, a person of interest. And it, it leads to an arrest. And unfortunately, when it becomes a violent struggle, sometimes you'll hear from the public, oh, wow, why is there 10 cars here? Why is there uh, 10 cops, 20 cops? And, and, and to the untrained eye or someone that's not in our profession, for them, I think the perception is that we're just dealing with one person. But you and I know from experience and our law enforcement professional brothers that are out there, it's not one person, it's one incident. Because we, when we're working in a, a metropolis, when we're dealing with that person, we have much more concerns other than just that person. We have to keep them safe as well, right? With this person that's going to come in our custody, we have to maintain control and their safety is paramount as well. So we have to worry about, especially metropolis, pedestrian traffic. We have to worry about vehicular traffic. We have to worry about the building location of who's above us. We have to worry about the crowd that's around us. So for us, it's an entire incident. It may require 20, 30 cops just to bring in one person of interest because it's not about that one person. It's about the one entire incident. And that's why I say policing is not one size fits all. It might be applicable to have three cops in a rural area to bring in one person because these may not be concerns. They may not have the dynamics of the vehicular traffic that we have, the pedestrian traffic. They may not have buildings where people are over their heads and they have to watch out for what we used to call airmail. Uh, you know, when people throw things out their windows, craziest items that ever come out the windows. And that's another concern. So there's so many factors. And that's where I, I would love the opportunity for the Civilian Complaint Review Board and the public to understand that it's not the person, it's the incident. Yep. So so this is kind of a little bit off topic. Oh, it's not off topic. It, it, it's kind of on the same topic, but it's a little off, off, off what, uh, where I was going. Um, your opinion. You've supervised hundreds of people in the police department. You've worked with hundreds of guys. Did you ever work with anyone that wanted to go out and assault anybody, whether it be a violent, a felon, or anybody? Have you ever worked with a cop that was like, I'm going to go out today and I'm going to fuck somebody up? I'm so glad you asked that. Thank God you asked that. And you would think over time working with, you know, um, alpha males and alpha females. Uh, and the answer is absolutely no. I have not yet met a cop who said, you know what? I just want to fuck somebody up. I want to hurt someone. For most guys, they just want to get coffee. You know, they want to go out and they want to do a good job. They want to get uh, an award. They want to be recognized to enhance their career. But I'm yet to have someone that just wants to go out and hurt someone just to hurt it. It's quite the opposite. They actually want to go out and help people. It's and the public, unfortunately, not all the public, but for those that are opposed and that have that anti-police sediment and they create this anti-police rhetoric, that's, that's the agenda. That in the, in the, and I've I, I read some of these articles, they call it copaganda. And that's the copaganda that they want to project is that we want to hurt people. It's quite the opposite. And um, for the most part, and we know it, not only do we police the streets, but we police each other. And I'm pretty confident that none of us would allow that person to survive within the police department. We would weed them out. They wouldn't make it. 
Absolutely. And, and, and even just being a supervisor, if you've seen someone, I, I've corrected so many young cops on how to even speak to somebody or how to interact with someone or your mannerisms to, you know, they, you know, the politicians, they throw around de-escalation all the time. They have no idea how to de-escalate anything. They've never even been involved in these situations, but they always throw that out. And, and, you know, we trained each other how to de-escalate because we know what's going to happen when physical violence has to be deployed to keep everyone safe, including the person you're arresting, including the person you're arresting, because you don't want harm to come to him because you know it's coming right back on you. And at the end of the day, we're all just going to do a job. You don't want to get arrested for doing your job. You don't want to go, you know, lose your job. Like people are, you know, cops are going out there that, you know, 99.9% and even, you know, there are, everybody's on the up and up here, like, you know, and, 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 you know, where, you know, the police department, the New York City Police Department has this rap as a racist, uh, what do they call it? Systemically racist department. I'm like, it's, it's, it's the most laughable thing I've ever heard in my life. It's, it's insane. It's poor immigrant my, uh, minority kids who became cops who wind up policing their own neighborhoods like you did, right? Police your own neighborhood, the kids you played with, the kids you grew up with, um, crazy absolutely i think i think the same thing and uh i that's exactly what i like we don't we never i've never seen that like somebody want to go out to fuck somebody up uh we do do targeted enforcement though and yes cops want to get bad guys if someone's breaking into your home if somebody's shooting up somebody if somebody's breaking into cars yes we are targeting that individual. We are going out there that day to arrest them. That's what you pay us for, you know. Um, and and no, we don't want to deploy violence against that person. It's it's it, it's just it. They dictate what we do, you know. Um. So absolutely, you it. And uh, could you just talk about the your your time in the police department? Uh, uh, just the relationships you developed with your subordinates, with your peers, with your supervisors. And the community. Oh, that's great. Well, you know what? That, like I said, that's another question. Too easy. Let me start with the people that I worked with. For one, uh, you know, I, I just retired. And uh, the guys had a function for me. And they were thanking me up and down. And, and, and I really appreciate it. But I said to myself, they're thanking me. But I want to be thanking them. Because I'm just one person. But the beauty of it is especially being a boss in this job and, and the higher higher up in this job, the, obviously the more people that you supervise. And as a lieutenant, you know, sometimes I, I supervise close to 60 people in the special operations unit. But I want to thank them because I had an opportunity. They say they learn from me, but I think I learned more from them. I got to watch young men and women, the best, the ones that put their heart and soul into this job. And they go out every day into communities that they don't live in. They don't know the people. And they try. They're willing they legitimately are willing to put their lives online to help these people. And I, I'm thankful for what they, they did for me to watch them go out, to be alongside of these amazing men and women. I'm grateful to them to see the actions that they take out there. And, and, and I, I can't be, I can't have enough gratitude for them helping me in, in my career. Uh, amazing men and women. I have, uh, I, 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 I'm just flabbergasted. I, you know, I'm just, I'm just so grateful that I got to see this. And like you said, it's the greatest show on earth. And I got to see the, the greatest men and women at the greatest show on earth. And, and they do it day in and day out. 
they don't ask for a thank you. They just ask for a paycheck. And can we get them a good paycheck, please? I mean, how many years are these guys without a contract? This is an atrocity. No, it's, it's really sad. It is sad. It, it is. You can't live in the city you police. It's it's it's, and you can't raise a family. It's it's it is sad. Um, I mean, I I think that most of what you're thanking them for though does fall back a lot on you. Um, because you know, there's a lot of leadership in in the police department. It's say what I do, uh, do what I say. Excuse me, do what I say. And, you know, I saw a lot of bosses like that in my time. It's what actually drove me to take the test. I had a lot of great bosses, too. A lot of great bosses that I learned from and that I emulated and I took bits and pieces of everybody. But, you know, it was the bad bosses that really could make the job awful. And I always hung my hat on. And and I know you did, too, is I'll never tell anybody to do something that I won't do myself. You know, and that goes that goes a long way with the men and women and like. You know, I, I'm pretty outspoken politically. I'm pretty outspoken. And, I, and and a lot of the guys that work for me, we differ on a lot of different subjects. But we always had that mutual respect and love for each other because we were always honest with each other. And, you know, and when I would, you know, as a supervisor, that's what I did. And I know you did that, too. And that's kind of why those men and women, they want leadership. They need leadership. So they went out every day and they worked because, they knew there would be a rational voice and somebody there for them. So, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't not uh, give yourself a pat on the back because that that's part of that. That is a huge part of that. Well, if, if I, the message, and I would love, if I could get a message out there to these the young bosses that are getting promoted now, they just had a promotion on Friday. And the best message I could give to them is this. It's very simple. Because you're the leader, you shouldn't ex- assume that you are the best in every category. A good leader utilizes the best in their team and utilize the resource to make the best team. So don't expect each person to be uh, excellent in every category. Well, you have to find what makes that person tick. And in each person, you have to find out what they're good at. And then you should exploit that. You want to exemplify their strengths and encourage that. And, and the weaknesses that they have, that's something that you work on in a positive manner, not in a punitive manner. It has to be a positive manner. You have to encourage them. So ultimately, I would say the number one thing that was the key to our success, and I say success at PSA 7 Special Operations, we've gotten unit citations, and we've been recognized for firearms, things like that. And it's not because we're better than everybody else or smarter. It's because we built relationships. The cop to my left and the cop to my right depended on me, and I depended on them. And that's what I learned in the Marine Corps, and I transitioned that into the police department, is when you build relationships, you build success. Because the person to your right or to your left doesn't want to let you down, and you don't want to let them down. And that's the key to success when you're out there is that when you're tired, well, they pick you up. They're tired, you pick them up. They're hungry, you pick them up. And if you're hungry, vice versa. And that's the way it has to be a team effort. And you, as the leader, you're part of the team. You know, and, and sometimes what makes us ineffective as leaders is if we try to micromanage. And micromanage is a very ineffective tool. There's numerous types of leadership. You could be delegative. You could be authoritative. There's different types of leadership. And, and there's great books that really depict them out there. But the most important thing, and I think I believe in what Ronald Reagan used to say, is trust and verify. So you have to trust your people. And then when everything is done, you can verify. And then you have an opportunity to reflect on what we did and how we did it to make us better. And I say us, us, we. These are key words, not I. And we can't play, point blame. 
when something goes wrong, we have to say, well, what did we do wrong or what could we do differently to make this better? And that's how we grow as a team because it doesn't take one, one person can't do this job. It takes a team. It takes a unit. It takes a division. It takes a bureau. And we know that, right? So we have to build relationships. That's the greatest takeaway I can take from this job for success is building relationships. And I, and I send that message out there to my new bosses out there. Build relationships with your people. Break bread with them. Get to know their families. Understand what makes them tick. You know, for some guys, the drive is to make overtime. They have a house. They have a family. For some, it's time off. So you have to find out what works for them and what gets them to tick. Know your people. Build those relationships. That's a great message. You know, you just, you. that's a great message. You know, I hope you guys adhere to that. That's, that's, that's good advice, you know, and, and not be full of shit either. Actually care. You're a passionate guy. I could tell just by anybody that's listening mm. to you could tell that you care. You know, that's the, that's, that's the real leader, right? Cause you do care about your men and women and you care Absolutely. about everything that's going on, you know? So that you, know. you have to show, you have to show care. Listen, we all have had kids. You know, if you have a woman that's in your unit and you find out that she's pregnant, show care, show love, make sure that she's okay. You know, Get her a, a spot, maybe administratively, but at the same time, you don't want her to think that she's she's not useful anymore. Give her a role that she could still be effective in that unit. So she's not down and out. She's still valuable, and you have to use that value, and that person will be so grateful that you still use their value. If we have a, a, a someone in a unit and, and they just have a tough time learning a particular thing, you know, don't kick them to the curb. You know what? Say, listen. What is their good? Exploit that. And their weakness, we can keep work on it. And for some people, they get things right away. For some, it takes time. So we need to be compassionate with people because that's what makes this the police department. People say the job. Who is the job? The job is people. That's who the job. We are the job. It's people. And we need to stand up for each other. And we need to protect each other and respect each other. And sometimes we, we've really lost that. We need to respect each other. In order for the public to respect us, we got to respect each other within this is probably one of the, the this is one of those organizations. Unfortunately, I used to always say this: it eats its own. And, and I love this job, and I'm not saying that to, to knock on it, but it does. It eats its own. They condemn you, and then they investigate. So let, let's let's support each other first. No, that's that's a powerful message. I say it all the time: the NYPD eats its own, and and it does. My uh my best friend one time he asked me, "What do you describe your job to me?" And I was like a young sergeant. I was probably like two or three years into being a sergeant. I probably had less than 10 years on the job. And he, and I said, I go to a 911 call. I do the best that I could do at the scene with the information I'm given, with the resources I have. I truly want that situation resolved to the best of my ability that I could do at the time that I do. Um, and when I leave that job, I always wonder – what's going to come back and bite me in the ass. And it, it's, it's, you know, like, the, and for the level that we do it at in New York city, the amount of jobs that we go to that, you know, it's, it's, it's an impossibility. It really is to do the job perfectly, but I, I think your message is right. You do it with compassion and you do it with care. I think the, the major problem is not the men and women in the precincts and the men and women working, the lieutenants, the sergeants, and even and even some of the captains, you know, like the lower rank. I think I think the main problem in the department is is the, the politically appointed leadership. You know, they know what's right, but they're unwilling to say it or do it. And 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 they've kinda they're 
they've kind of destroyed this job for their lack of leadership and compassion and care, not only for the men and women in the NYPD, but for the residents in New York City. And that's a big problem. You know, it's it's a huge problem. Um, so, you know, you're always an active cop. You were active as a police officer. You were active as a sergeant. You were active as a lieutenant. Uh, I know that you would have been a captain if CCRB didn't hold you up. And I'm sure uh-huh. if you, you would probably still be on this job if things were differently. Um, how many arrest situations have you partaken? If you had to estimate between your own arrests and the amount of arrests you supervised, Thousands. I, I couldn't even put a number on it. Thousands because, uh, you know, directly. It's, it's funny that you say that. And this is unfortunate with the police department. I think uh, sometimes, you know, we ask someone how many arrests do you have and their name or their tax number will pop up and populate on a report as having a particular matter. But that just means that's what they generated and they articulate to the district attorney. But, you know, what, what the public needs to understand is that there's many cops and for different reasons that they may not have, not have populated a lot of arrests under their name, but they were involved and they participated and they brought a lot of value to an arrest situation. So we all take partake in these arrests. So I always say I never made these arrests myself. Absolutely not. But I've been 100%. part of thousands and most of them have been illegal firearms. Thousands of arrests. How many, if you had to estimate emergency incidents, have you responded to in your career? Whether they whether they had an arrest, it was a car accident, it was somebody was having a heart attack, somebody was shot. How many emergency incidents have you responded to in your career? Well, I, that's a great uh, question. So, I always t- teach my guys that every call, every response, every interaction is an emergency incident. And the reason why I say that is because to that person, that is our complainant for the day, for that person. It's an emergency for that person, for them having to report an issue to the police department is the worst day of their life. So for them, it is an emergency, a car accident, which may seem routine to us and simple, even if it's just property damage. It's an emergency for someone because for them, there's financial ruin. They may be late to work. That's it's a it's a dynamo effect that sometimes ruins their entire day. Uh, so for for myself, I would say every incident is an emergency. That's how we represent the public. Yep. So how many would you say that how many of these incidents, which is basically, like you said, it's every radio run you've ever been to. I, I agree with you 100% there. What, what, how many do you think you, you, in your 18 years and nine months as New York City police officer, how many, how many emergency incidents, if you had to estimate? Well, I would say approximately 10 a day working five days a week over 18 years and nine months. And I can, I'm proud to say I haven't went sick since 2010. I only went sick twice on the entire job. So I was always there and I didn't always take all my vacation time because I enjoyed being there. I enjoyed being surrounded by these men and women. So I'd have to get a calculator right now to do it, but it's, it's numbers that astronomical. Astronomical numbers. It has to be, it has to be around 250,000. Absolutely. 250,000. So, Absolutely. you know, I just, and the, and the reason I ask you these questions is because I don't think anyone that doesn't live in New York City, and I think people that even live in New York City that don't understand the amount 
of volume of jobs that a police officer and people that a police officer in New York City interacts with, the amount of jobs in your time frame, you will have rivaled multiple police departments added up together in that same time frame. That that the amount of incidents you yourself have uh have responded to, the amount of arrests you have responded to. So, you know, the NYPD is a unique animal. It really, it really is. And it's, you know, I I I, you know, I'm in awe that you're able to sit here and have a normal conversation with me and still talk rationally and express your opinions to me with the amount of volume of things that you've had to deal with in your life. And I don't think people respect that. I really don't. And I don't think they respect how much reflection and self-reflection you had to go to to sit here to be the person you are today. And, and that's true for every cop that's out there and doing it, you know? So it's a, you know, I, I, I give you credit, man. You know, I, I take my hat off to you. I, I really appreciate it because in this past year, I'll be honest with you, you know, I, the uh, amount of uh, uh, charges that I faced from the civilian complaint review board, it came to a point, I have an office as a lieutenant, and I, I would sit in the office and I had a mound of paperwork and just the charges just kept coming. Charges and lawsuits. It was just mounting up and it just it just kept accumulating. And I sat there and I said to myself, how did we get here? How did I become the, the bad guy? You know, all I ever wanted to do was help the public, help the fellow cops. How did we get here? And that's why I'm so happy to try to get this message out there. I, I don't have any vengeance in this. I'm not here to um, I'm not angry at the Civilian Complaint Review Board, but I want them to have an opportunity to understand and get a law enforcement perspective. And, and, and let's have an open conversation and let's get a better understanding of what it is and the nature of police work before we try to be so punitive. I'm not sure what exactly is the agenda is. I, 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 I do suspect what the agenda is, but ultimately my agenda is to support these men and women that are still out there and those that are actually have that curiosity of, of becoming an NYD, NYPD police officer, and, and, they, and, and, and I assume they're probably on the fence right now, this is a tough decision to make because you're going into a very hostile environment. And uh, it's clear, you know, my lawyer had expressed that uh, my police work was not being appreciated, and I, I felt that. And, 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 and I agree with that. It, they don't want this type of policing anymore, which is a shame because that's what works. Anti-crime, this proactive policing, which is stopping the crime before it happens, being to being able to use those observation skills, and we're trying to shut that down. It's it's really hurting the public, and and that's the irony. The Civilian Complaint Review Board is uh, is claiming to help the civilians out there, but they're hurting the public. They're hurting them, and they're really a major contributing factor to the rise in crime, especially in New York City. Yeah, so so let's get into that. Let's get in that. You are. You now have the title, the most complained about cop in NYPD history, right? You're the most complained about ever. You have a yes. hundred, you have 115 allegations against you. 56 of those have been substantiated. Um, yes. In your opinion, you know, and you, and you ask, you ask yourself, how did we get there? In your opinion, how did that happen? Why is that so? Like, I know I'm going to tell you why I believe that you are you have that title. 
And it's because in about 2015, when we went away from stop, question, and frisk, when anti-crime started getting demonized, when they started tracking the most minor crazy things, when they started self-reporting every incident and sending it over to CCRB to investigate, and when we gave away, when we gave away this investigative power to a civilian agency, guys, proactive guys – the 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 10% of the job that did all the work the majority of them stepped back from policing guys like me they went to either investigative units they went to administrative units and they backed off and you didn't you kept doing what you signed up to do and you did what the public expects a police officer to do and i truly believe you are a victim of the system that was put in place. But I want to hear your opinion. Why do you believe you have this title? Why do you believe you have all of these allegations? And and I mean, because and, and, and just for everyone, to, and I don't want to ramble on this, but just so everyone understands, you cannot control someone making an allegation or a complaint against you. It's actually in today's in today's New York City. The city of New York does not fight any lawsuit. So when you have a career perpetrator that has a lawyer, the lawyer instructs his client to file a complaint against the police officer, and they're going to sue the city of New York. And the city of New York Corporation Council will not even put up a fight and just cut that person a lawsuit, 250000 300000 This is all well-documented info. You could go on the New York City Law Department. You could look up the, the past 10 years of it. It's absolutely disgusting, the amount of things that were paid out on and what they were paid out on but i want to hear from you you were the man in the arena you were the one you know you've been demonized so much in the news media um why do you believe you have that title well i actually what i i know it sounds kind of ironic but i want to thank them for putting my name out there and the reason being is now i have the opportunity to really put out the message because i want to help the civilian complaint review board and i want to help the police department i want to help the public so I'm hoping to mend this together. But I, I do believe the reason why I got it is exactly that. You know, as we were doing anti-crime, I was out there as a sergeant and as a lieutenant, as a special operations lieutenant, leading the crime guys, doing a job we were trained to do. And when we would go to these ComSat meetings, the game didn't change. The agenda was the same. They still, uh, the discussion was there. Let's target these uh, gun offenders, repeated gun offenders. Let's target these robbery locations, these shooting locations. Uh, and and where the department on the upper echelon with the politicians failed us is that when they spoke to the media and they, you know, they tried to, you know, perpetuate this community type policing. But yet we still had the anti-crime guys out there and we told them to go out there and do this job. And their perception as we transitioned to the de Blasio administration. And here we are with Mayor Eric Adams is gearing towards this community policing. Now. There is a complete dichotomy of doing anti-crime work, community policing, and they both are necessary. But because someone is out there and having interactions with people and there are level one, level two, level three stops, which means that we're being intrusive, using the court cases of people versus DeBoer to understand the levels of intrusion, to interact with you that lead to guns, lead to illegal firearms. And that helps people. And that's community policing. It was more geared to let's take pictures of the guys going out there and hugging people and handing ice cream. And that's great and all, but we still have a tool belt, and that tool belt has handcuffs on. And those handcuffs are so that we can bring persons of interest to justice. 
And what the public has to understand is that you do not have to prove your innocence. You're innocent until proven guilty. There's a dichotomy between what happens in the street and what happens in the courthouse. It's the court's job to interpret your actions. It's the court's job to determine, did you commit this crime? Will he be convicted? But you are innocent until proven guilty. Our job as the police department is just this simple, which people understand. It's just reason to believe, based on common sense standards, that you committed this crime. And now what happened in this transition is guys like yourself saw the tides turning. And I and, and, and I like to consider myself an intelligent person. I saw the tides turning as well. But what I learned in the Marine Corps was do not leave no man behind. So I felt I had these young men and women that I mentored and I brought them up learning anti-crime. So I felt there was a duty that I stay with them and lead them because I had opportunities. I was offered detective squads numerous times and every opportunity I had to go to an administrative unit, I could have been for myself and I could have went out there and done that. But I said, I have a duty to these men and women that I brought up and I taught them my style of policing, which is what I was taught through the impact area, through growing out there, doing proactive policing. So I couldn't leave them behind. And I knew that I, might, I may get dragged through the mud as I saw the, the politics changing, as I saw it evolving. But I was confident that, you know, throughout history, we could see how police is always evolving. I always teach the new guys during orientation that, hey, you have to understand police is evolving, evolving wheel. If you go back to 1950 and you see the, the cop, John Smith, he had a tool belt and all that was on it was a pair of cuffs and a gun. He didn't have a radio. He didn't have mace. He didn't have a vest. But if we forward 10 years past, that cop starts to get, they add on a radio. 10, 10 years later, they add on a vest. And here we are now in the technological area. We've added on body cameras. And I always felt that we could evolve and we can still do the job as procedure changed. Procedure changed. But what had changed now that I think is, unless we change what has changed, which is law, we can never get these streets back and we can't go back because we didn't just change procedure. We changed law. And the Civilian Complaint Review Board with these laws has gotten so much power to really, and when I say it, actually hurt the cops because they're just trying to be punitive. There should be a, a, a perspective where how can we help these cops to do their job to help the public? But it's just about being punitive. And I'm pretty confident. I haven't seen it yet. And I'm doing my homework. I'm confident the Civilian Complaint Review Board has generated their own type of offender list. I'm confident that I'm probably at the top of that list. And obviously, my name got out there because I always believed in leading from the front. I was at the forefront. I led these men and women from the front because they relied on me and I relied on them. And in addition to that, we have organizations, particularly Jose LaSalle, who is in charge or the founder of the Cop Watch Patrol Unit. And it, it's his words that are getting to these people out there that only have this one-sided ideology of what it is to be in policing. You know, I, I've been to, uh, unfortunately, but I, I guess we could say fortunately because of value, I've learned it. I've been to more investigations than I can count. And through these CCRB investigations, what I found is most of these young investigators, they're from out of town. So they don't know the area. They don't know the geographical area of employment. They have an anti-police sentiment already in their minds, and they have a perception of what policing is about. So I would love to even join the Civilian Complaint Review Board so that I can actually give them a law enforcement perspective. Uh, for instance, I could just give you a scenario. There was a particular person of interest that myself and my team had grabbed for a shooting. 
This person was identified as the shooter. We had this person on video and we made the apprehension. Now, this particular person lived on Webster Avenue in the housing authority projects there. And the CCR, the Civilian Complaint Review Board investigator had asked me in the interview, did this person shoot at someone or shoot in their backyard? So clearly I knew that this person had no understanding of what the dynamics are of that neighborhood because the person lives in housing. They don't have a backyard. And to fire even one single shot could hurt. Unfortunately, we know we've seen four-year-old kids, three-year-old kids get shot. So it, it, it really dawned on me that this person has no idea of the area that they're trying to investigate. Um, so I, I would love to be a part of this. They need a law enforcement perspective so that the Civilian Complaint Review Board can make a fair assessment. They, they don't understand the profession of law enforcement. Uh, it, it's unfortunate, and their agenda is really hurting the cops. And more than that, they're hurting the public because the cops can't do their job to help the people. And it's actually come to the point where, if I can actually continue, unfortunately, we know that most people are more afraid of public speaking than death. And that's what's happened with our cops. They're, they're more fearful of the ramifications of a civilian complaint than of getting shot or getting stabbed by a violent perpetrator in the streets. And this is, this, unfortunately, that's the point that we've come to. This is the pinnacle moment in history. So, so I'm going to elaborate on that a little bit. So for those of you that don't know, I, I know it's, it's out there that I've served in internal affairs. I was there for two years and eight months. Uh, part of that two years and eight months, I was the commanding officer of the CCRB liaison unit. So for those of you that don't understand, when a complaint comes into the police department, most complaints do not go directly to the to the uh, they do not go directly to CCRB. Most complaints go through the police department to start. They call Internal Affairs Bureau of the NYPD and they complain about an officer, whatever it was. Oh, I was arrested. I was stopped wrongly. Whatever it may be, you know, the majority, the overwhelming majority of these allegations turn out to be unsubstantiated. Like I said, most of the most of the complaints are how and I do believe that you, Eric Dim, and a lot of other proactive cops are recidivists in 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 uh, CCRB. You're probably on a watch list somewhere there. I definitely Absolutely. believe that 100. percent And you know, and they're looking to get you to make a statement that they could say is false. But so this is how it works for people that don't understand. The complaint comes in, and there's multiple allegations in the complaint. Um, you know, like the, a lawyer had instructed someone that was arrested to file a complaint against the officer for monetary gain for both the lawyer and the criminal who was guilty of the crime that they committed. Okay. And so that, that's that, but now they complain about how the officer handled it. They complain about the stop. So let's say that he gets the allegation of unlawful stop. He gets the allegation that he told them to drop the fucking gun. So now he gets Fado, right? Uh, CCRB investigates Fado complaints, uh, use of force complaints, abuse of authority complaints, uh, discourteous, which would be cursing. And then, um, oh, is, uh, oh, is, uh, what the hell is, oh. Offensive language. Offensive language. I'm sorry. Yeah. Discourtesies is discourtesy could be your mannerisms on how you stop them. And then O is the offensive language. So all of those type of allegations will go to the CCRB to investigate. But if, if they, if the, if the complaint rises to 
a level that's higher than a fatal complaint, there'll be a concurrent uh, concurrent investigation done by the NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau or the NYPD's in- inspection units. So the majority of these times when people are getting substantiated complaints by the CCRB, the NYPD is saying, no, this person is not guilty. This is either unfounded or unsubstantiated. And the reason that is, it's not because the NYPD is protecting their own. Because like, like Eric just said, and like I just said, and you could ask any cop that's ever been out there on the street, we eat our own on this job. We yes. eat our own. And, and we do have the most scrutiny um, at, at every level. You know, these investigations go all the way up to the police commissioner and come all the way back down. You know, it's not just a guy that's making the investigation or his CEO and all that. But those the reason that those investigations, the majority of the time, come back unsubstantiated for the police department is when we investigate crimes as a when we investigate as a police department allegations, we are looking for criminality. So our standard of proof is so much higher than the Civilian Complaint Review Board standard of proof. Not only that, our investigation is much more thorough and much more proper because you're being investigated by people who actually have investigative experience and who understand the law and the intricacies of the police department and policing. You know, men and women like me who are out there who stopped hundreds of people, made hundreds of arrests out there. And now I'm I'm reviewing this and I'm like, everything's proper. It falls within the patrol guide guidelines. It falls within this. I understand the policing aspect of it. So now you'll get the CCRB. We'll find a member of the police department. They'll give them a substantiated complaint that the police department didn't give them any discipline on. And their level, their burden of proof is not there because it's just a civil hearing and there's no criminality in there. Um, so... But what what groups like Cop Watch and what all of these independent journalists and even reporters don't understand is that that's not a that's not a thorough investigation. And, you know, like you were saying, like about uh, uh, false statement complaints and in my experience, they were attempting they were attempting questions to have you make a false statement. And that statement was never even relevant to the allegation you had. In my opinion, a lot of the, the people are not in search of the truth. It has became a numbers game in the civilian complaint review board. They need to justify their existence. They need to justify a bigger budget. Do you feel that CCRB is in search of the truth and, and all your investigations that you sat down, do you feel that they are in search of the truth? Absolutely not. Absolutely. Not. I just think they they have an agenda and their goal is to be punitive. And obviously, it's to seek out, get more power to actually terminate good police officers that are actually out there doing proactive police work. They want to call it aggressive police work. It's necessary police work. This is what keeps crime down. It's great to go out there, like I said, and have neighborhood coordination officers attend basketball games and things like that. They're great. They do build relationships with the community. But they don't hit the obstacle and curb crime. It's just not effective. It's not an effective tool in curbing crime. And I've seen it out there at first hand. It just doesn't work. And it's the anti-crime unit that's extremely necessary of getting these illegal firearms off the street. And I'm like you said, I'm extremely confident 
that the Civilian Complaint Review Board has transitioned or transformed myself. I'm sure they probably have a picture of me in, in their office. Well, that's the bad guy. And in any way we could get that guy, because it's ironic for some of these civilian complaints that I have received charges. And if the public is not sure to understand, I'd like to explain what charges are. Absolutely. So it's actually it's a formal it's formal discipline. We have what's called command disciplines, which are at the command level. And you could have what's called an A command discipline, which is low level. You could receive up to five vacation days or a B command discipline, which you can lose up to 10. We even have what's generated now called a C which you can lose up to 20 vacation days. These are at the command level where it's meant to instruct the police officers so that they learn from it. There is punitive by losing vacation days, but at the command level, it's not formal discipline. And when the Civilian Complaint Review Board generates what we call charges, that means you're going to be brought up on a department administrative trial where you'll have formal discipline and they could seek out more punitive and even include the possibility of termination. And unfortunately, their investigators are inadequate. They don't understand police work. And the message out there is let's be punitive with these cops. And, and I really think the, uh, it, the abuse of authority is also on the Civilian Complaint Review Board. Because for most of my cases that I have received charges for, they stem from 2018 to 2020 in plain clothes, which are not even relevant till now. But because of COVID, they got an extension from Governor Cuomo to exceed their investigations, which, which I think is unfair because here, myself and the police officers are out in the field throughout the whole COVID operation. But the investigations were extended because if the public is not sure or doesn't know, the Civilian Complaint Review Board has 18 months from the time of the incident to find, substantiate, or come to a determination for that case to determine if there's any wrongful doing. But there is a little caveat that they use for myself in particular is that if we exceed these 18 months, if we determine that if proven this case would be a criminal charge that you could be convicted in court, that they could exceed the 18 months. And that's where they got, uh, they uh, substantiate charges with myself. Um, in which I think is unfair. And so they were allotted 218 more days because of the COVID extension. So in many of these cases, they held on to the investigation. And I think that we really gotten away from the idea of due process. So when I had gotten to the point that I decided that I'm ready to retire, I, had, I was facing eight sets of charges. So it's my right and it's our right and our police officers need to be educated to understand that you have the right to take them to trial. So I had requested a trial, but I was told it would take two to three years. So I wasn't willing to wait for it. I made a point in my life. I was ready to move on. Um, and so I put my papers, papers in and I was I put my papers in with the understanding that I would not leave in good standing because I wasn't willing to wait for these trials. So that's when the Civilian Complaint Review Board offered myself a deal. And uh, the first deal I, I didn't take. And then finally, I agreed to the 64 days. Uh, and, and just so that I can retire in good standing and maybe I could help my, help others in another facet with law enforcement. I wanted this to be bigger than myself. But what happens with the Civilian Complaint Review Board, they're just being punitive and they're not helping the public because now we're making the police officers fearful from doing their job. We're micromanaging. The Civilian Complaint Review Board is supposed to be a third party watchdog to, to, so that we have balance. Right. The Civilian Complaint Review Board is to ensure that the police officers in these four categories 
do not exceed the amount of force, do not abuse authority, are not discouraged to use a force offensive language. But clearly our investigations are poor, particularly in the part where it becomes abuse of authority. We all are, are, are aware, and if the public's not aware, the business cards that the police officers hand out with their information is part of a law called the Right to Know Act. So if I interact with someone at a level three stop, which is reasonable suspicion, I'm required by law to pre present this card, which is my information. And But what we're finding is that if the, that is not presented, the Civilian Complaint Review Board is bringing the police officer or cop or lieutenant or every, any rank up on administrative charges. And the charge is that you abuse your authority. And just looking at this as a superficially at, at a glance, if you don't get in depth of what happened, it looks terrible. And I can understand the perception and the optics from the public. Wow, this cop alleged abused his authority. But in this case, the allegation is just they didn't hand out a business card in response to this law. And in addition to that, this is where our investigators fail. The Civilian Complaint Review, Review Board investigators have brought charges up on lieutenants for not presenting their shield to the public, not giving their shield number. And the irony is lieutenants do not have a shield number. I mean, they do not have a shield number. And our Civilian Complaint Review Board investigators, I would love to help them and educate them to understand that uh, exactly what goes on in each rank so that they can do a better investigation. So we come to a better outcome. They offer mediation. Let's have mediation with the civilian complaint review and investigators and the police officers give them insight and show them, hey, it wasn't just about this one person, but it was about the entire incident so that we can actually help the public. And the job, and I say the job, again, that's people, but our higher echelon is aware of this. And we know it because every year we get what's populated a survey about the job. And I'm a firm believer that we always ask questions to the answers we already know. And one of the questions, if you remember, John, I'm sure you're confident, is does CCRB, does the fear of a civilian complaint keep you from doing proactive police work? And we all know the answer is yes. And they're really hurting. And, and, and we've come to a point the last year, I myself, I've observed numerous opportunities to conduct a stop where I'm confident I would obtain an illegal firearm, but I shied away from it because the amount of charges were mounting up. It was becoming, it was a lot of work for me just on the side because I had to take this time away from doing actual police work because I had to investigate these cases because I had to produce my own case, my own defense in response to these charges. No, it's a, it's, it's a sad state of affairs. I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to tell a little story about CCRB and then I'm going to, ask you if you could elaborate just the most ridiculous thing without getting into names or dates or anything, sure. the most ridiculous experience you had down there. But I'm going to tell you in my time when I was working with them, there was an incident where a male black was driving a vehicle. Um, the CCRB obtained a third party video. Some guy on the street sees these cops. It happened to be a Lieutenant. It wasn't you, but it happened to be a Lieutenant and an officer. <laughs> It, it, it happened to be a lieutenant and an officer stop a vehicle. Now, I don't know the interaction. You can't hear it because the male's on the other side. But in my mind, I believe that they smelled marijuana or the guy was smoking marijuana because it just appeared to be a stop that I've done so many times. So they, they stopped the car. It's uh, I believe the, the lieutenant was a male white and the cop was a male black. And the, the driver of the vehicle that they stopped was a male black. They approached the car tactically. They ask the driver to step out of the car. They search him. They search the vehicle. 
They talk for a few minutes. They shake hands with, with, with the guy that they stopped, and he gets back in the car, and they leave. CCRB obtains this info. They obtain the identification of the guy that was stopped um, by the, the police officers via his license plate. They obtain the, the officers who they were. Obviously, they were in a marked patrol car, so it's not hard to identify police officers and who they are. So they identify who they are. They make contact with the, with the, with the male who was stopped. Now, again, I believe that he was smoking weed. The whole way that went about, it was a stop. They searched him. You, we don't, you know, the cops aren't, we're not just taking people out, stopping them for no reason and searching them. It just doesn't do that. And at this time, Bill de Blasio's the mayor and, you know, everything's under scrutiny, you know, so it's, it's, that's, that's what happened in my head. I don't know that for a fact, but I do know for a fact that when they contacted the guy that was actually stopped and searched, they asked him if he would like to file a complaint. And the mail stated, no, the cops were just doing their job. I have no problem with the police and does not elaborate further than that. Right. He's not going to say, oh, yeah, speaking to a government agency. Yeah, I was smoking weed and they let me go. He didn't say that. He just said, I have no problem with the police. They were doing their job. CCRB still goes ahead with their investigation and finds the lieutenant and the cop guilty of an unlawful stop and issue them formal charges. And and they receive discipline for this. So. That's ridiculous. It's it's absolutely utterly ridiculous. Who was the complainant? The complainant they used was the third party who doesn't doesn't even know why the mail was stopped. He was the one that that he would they used him as the complainant and and this cop and this lieutenant received discipline. So now when you run their history, oh yeah, they're guilty of an unlawful stop. Look at these guys. So if you don't mind, could you just share the most ridiculous experience you've had without elaborating names or dates or anything like that, that you've had with the CCRV. Uh, Absolutely. And and here's the irony to it. So in some of these cases that I received formal charges from the civilian complaint review board, who is our third party watchdog agency, I received awards and medals from the New York city police department. Now I'm not trying to brag just to show you that I was a good standing with the police department. The last eight years, I received a five on my eval, which everyone knows this topic you get. You have to get the commanding officer's approval to get that evaluation. I never go sick. I I took pride in this job, but in one of the cases I grabbed a a violent perpetrator uh, who already had a history of, of, of resisting fighting with police officers. He actually had an arrest in the past where he rendered a, a lieutenant, in the 3-2 precinct unconscious. So, and this is the part that the public doesn't understand. So, and this is something that I faced, and we need to educate the public in the Civilian Complaint Review Board, particularly our department advocate office. So when I faced a trial, a particular case, a lot of the discussion was, and this is where we're failing, a lot of discussion was the perpetrator's convictions. Now, when I go out in the street, I don't go out with their conviction rates I go out with their arrest rap sheet. So I had a history of about eight uh, separate arrests where this particular violent perpetrator had assaulted police officers, had resisted arrest. He's shot people in the past. He's been caught with illegal firearms. This is a long arrest history. But in the trial, it appeared that I was the bully because he only had two convictions and they were for disorderly conduct. So This is what the people have to understand is that when myself and the anti-crime teams go out there, the knowledge that we use 
and to address and to form a tactical plan to keep everyone safe is the arrest history of this particular perpetrator. But because our law enforcement, our politicians, particularly the district attorney's office, are failing us, this perpetrator only had two convictions for disorderly conduct. So the outcome and the ability to use that as a resource to show the mindset of myself and the team of our approach was not applicable to this case. But in any case, when we grab this particular violent perpetrator on the street, immediately he fought with us. And he fought hard. Two tasers had to be utilized. And during the violent struggle, he bit two police officers. And as ugly as it is, I had to deploy several strikes to help my fellow police officer that was underneath him. And he was biting his ankle. And here was the most ridiculous thing that I thought was applicable to this case. So I received the narrative from the Civilian Complaint Review Board when they substantiated the charges for myself. And I was charged with assault. It had exceeded the 18 months. And as I told you about the crime exception, I was charged with assault. Now, did I deploy strikes? Yes, but it it was necessary to get him safe and to get my fellow cops safe. And what they wrote in the narrative was that the tasers utilized were necessary, that we were exonerated. And they wrote in the narrative that he was violently resisting and that he did bite police officers. But they kind of played it down and said that there were superficial wounds. But what this was the most uh, – it's almost hilarious. I had a laugh when I read it. I had a show where I said, can you see this? This is the most ridiculous thing. But they wrote that Lieutenant Dim was exonerated up to a point. And at some point that if Lieutenant Dim felt it was necessary to get the police officer safely from underneath the perpetrator, that deploying punches was not the way to achieve that goal. And they make it sound like achieving a goal, you know, that I want to enhance my career. We're talking about lives on the line, safety for myself and the cops. And they forget that we're human and we all have that fear factor. And we weren't just dealing with that violent perpetrator. We had large crowds. We were in the middle of New York City housing where the dynamics of it, this is people's homes. So everyone is curious to see what's going on in their home. Everyone comes out and gets a bird's eye view. We have people yelling and screaming and it becomes extremely tumultuous. And for them to say that that was not the necessary way to achieve that goal, it's extremely laughable. And, and, and they obviously have never experienced And that's why they need a law enforcement perspective. And I hope, hey, for the Civilian Complaint Review Board, I plan on filing an application. I'd love to get hired because I want to be a law enforcement eye to assist them and understand what is actually happening. Because most of us know we watch we watch UFC. We watch the football game. We may think we know what's going on, but it's not the same as when you're in the game. It's easy to say when we watch a game. Oh, why did the uh, Eli Manning throw the touchdown? Why did he do this? But when you're in the game, it's completely different. And the Civilian Complaint Review Board has not been in the game yet. Eric, were you trained in the police department to punch people in the face with a closed fist if, if necessary? Yes, absolutely. Is it within department regulations to strike people with a closed fist in, in a situation that would, would a violent, when a male is violently resisting arrest? Yes. Yes, right? So, you know, and, and again, this is, and I'm not saying that things don't need to be investigated, but to make such a determination, what 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 was feasible, 
you know, and, and I guess the wounds were superficial, right? And they were probably superficial because you struck him with a closed fist, because he probably would have broke the skin if you didn't. Right. Like, so that would, that, you know, it's, it's to gain compliance force is used to gain compliance. And, and my problem, what they told you there is they didn't tell you what you should have did. Right. Because nobody knows what you should have did in that situation. Cause like you said, life and death is on the line. You're in a project buildings. I, I, for those of you that never experienced that hundreds of people are coming out a lot. Don't like you. You don't know if you're going to take a brick off the head. You don't know if someone's going to start throwing. Uh, Eric referred to airmail. With those of you that don't know, it's kids up on the roof or even grown men up on the roof throwing things down at you while you're trying to, whatever it is, respond to an emergency incident, help someone, arrest someone, whatever it is. Same's true when you're on a, a train platform. I personally believe when you're in situations like that, you should your level of, of force should be raised. Because you should bring that to a successful closure right away to get that perp in custody and away and out of there right away. Because the longer you're there, the more the situation's going to get crazier. Your presence is going to create even more of a, a stir and, and cause a, a larger crowd to form and more chaos. So that the quickest thing to do is pick up and get out of there. So that's a huge, huge problem for me. Um, well, I, I I would love to elaborate on it. And yeah, what yeah, Civilian Complaint Review Board doesn't understand, and this is probably, uh, I would say, the most important for police officers and the public to understand, and you know this because you've been in situations yourself, time changes when you're involved in a violent struggle. And, and, and I could, and I always use this example. So I had a female sergeant that was working for me, and uh, if she ever watches this, I uh, want to thank her for always having my back. She was outstanding and a fantastic cop, and she, she's retired as well. But I particularly remember an incident where myself and, and, and her and this other lieutenant, we, we stopped uh, a young gang member directly in front of the precinct. And this was a couple of years back. And, and, and this one sticks out in my mind so much, I'll never forget. This was at the time where body cameras had just started. And I'll never forget, we grabbed this uh, young man. And he had numerous behavioral indicators that mimicked the outcomes we had of past firearms. We grabbed this young man right across from the prison. And he had a trouser belt tied underneath his chest. And the trouser belt was through the trigger guard. And here was a loaded 45 on his chest. And I'll never forget, the sergeant was the first one that actually made contact with this particular person of interest. And I'll never forget, she took the firearm off of him. She passed it to myself. And we made the arrest. But I'll never forget when we got in the car and we had the perpetrator transport another car. I really gave her a tough time only because I was concerned about her safety. And I said, damn, I said, why did you take so, so long to get that gun off of him? You know, God forbid he could get that gun and hurt you. And she said, it wasn't. She said, I took it off right away. And I really read, read her the riot act only because I was concerned. But when we went back to the priest, I'll never forget, I watched the body camera. And she took it off so fast. And it was fantastic police work. But because of the fear factor and the dynamics that I'm concerned about their safety, it, it felt like time slowed down. It felt like forever. But in reality, she did a fantastic job, and it was done in seconds. So time changes. And, and this really correlates, and that's what people don't understand. I, I don't know if we're going to get into it, where these body cameras are really hurting policing. That's another contributing factor. But in that particular case, with the body cameras, I had an opportunity to, to actually watch it and time was completely different from what I felt. 
And that's why the public understands that when we make an arrest, that we're supposed to be judged on real time of how we felt, the emotions that were involved during the actual incident. To look at something days later in a controlled environment by body camera, by video, it's not the reality. You can't get the emotion, the feeling, the tactical plan that was involved and generated days later. It will never correlate. It's not the same. And that fair, that opportunity that's supposed to be given from the Civilian Complaint Review Board is not because they can't understand. Again, like I said, they weren't in the game. They were watching the game. It's completely different. So, you know what, let's, let's jump ahead a little bit. Let's, let's get into that. So there was in 2020, CNN comes out with an article and the heart, the article is about body cameras, right? I think, I think body cameras come into the police department. There was like a trial in 16, but I think it goes, I think it goes department wide in like 17. I could be off at that time, but it's around there. You're you're hundred percent right. Yeah. hundred percent right. That's what it is. Okay. Um, but in 2020 now, it's, been, it's, it's full been deployed in the NYPD, and it's gone pretty much nationwide at this point. You know? um, so in 2020, this article comes out for CNN, and they say that body cameras are a great tool for transparency, but they do not reduce the use of force. Um, I think that's a flawed statement um, just because we don't, we don't <laughs> deploy force. We, we, we deploy force based upon – the, the actions of the individual that we're dealing with. So we don't control when force is used. We deploy it as necessary. So I think that's a flawed statement. Um, what are your feelings about the body camera? And then I'll tell you mine too. Like, what do you, what do you feel about the body camera? Well, I, I can go into this in several components, but let me go into the first one, how it does benefit and how it is, uh, I think a hurtful contributing factor to policing. So, it's my firm belief that body cameras are good for major incidents, but they're flawed when it comes to minor incidents. So let me explain on this. So, for instance, from a police officer's point of view, in protection of them for transparency, if you and I were riding together doing patrol and we arrest a female person of interest perpetrator, if she's getting transported in the back of our car, if there's an allegation that we raped her, God forbid, obviously that body camera is going to exonerate us. That's a major incident. But where it comes to minor incidents is where I think it's hurting us. So, for instance, when we're in a violent struggle, as I was saying before, where time changes, the public, and I'm really concerned with Civilian Complaint Review Board, doesn't really understand the dynamics because they've never been involved in a situation like that. It's really hard to understand the violent struggle when you're trying to place someone under arrest if you haven't been on it. And, it, and even for someone out there who is a fighter, Maybe if you're a fighter for a living, it's different dynamics also. Because when we're trying to arrest someone, the, uh, the goal that CCRB likes to use that term is to get this person in custody without creating any physical damage, keeping this person safe, and getting them into custody. But this person that we're dealing with has no rules. They may be trying to hurt you, but your objective goal is to get that person in custody so they, they can face the allegations in court. So what happens is when we watch these cameras, and I could correlate it to what happened myself in Civilian Complaint Review Board, when we watch these cameras, we're not in real time now. We have an opportunity to slow them down. We can look at it from different angles. And I can tell you in my particular case, when I had a violent struggle, the Civilian Complaint Review Board slowed it down, and they went frame by frame and said, in this moment, you continue to deploy punches, and another cop had grabbed one of the persons of interest 
hand. So now this person, one hand was not free. But for me in real time, I could not see that. I just felt the violent struggle continued. So these body cameras, it's a completely, it's not fair. It's an unfair advantage for the cop when we're looking at it days, months later, where we could freeze frame by frame. That's not how these situations unfold. And you and I know, particularly because we were out there, it's completely opposite of how they unfold with the boots on the ground to look at these body cameras in such a manner. And also what it does, it really curbs anti-crime police officers or that type of policing. Because again, when I go back to the professional with the observation skills with the eye, sees 1,000 things in an eighth of a second. And he may not be able to explain and transpond that information to the district attorney or civilian complaint. Because the civilian complaint person who has the untrained eye, watches the camera, does not see what that professional sees. So this is, uh, we really, we have a tough time working on this. And I'm, it's unfortunate, but I think that we'll never get these streets back until we get an understanding or we completely remove these body cameras. Yeah, so I, I, two things. I agree with you with, uh, I 100% agree with you with, it's good for reducing the nonsensical complaints. Oh, he stole my money. He did this. He did that. He touched me. He did that. It's good for that. It's bad. You're sitting in a car. Like you said, uh, I don't know the statistic you just gave. You see a thousand things in an eighth of a second, right? So you're driving in a car. Me and you are driving in a car. Maybe you don't even see what I see. And I'm like, stop the car. Stop the car. And all you see is me jump out and take action against this person. You have no idea if I saw this kid just put a firearm back in his waistband. You have no idea. The body camera does not capture what I saw originally. Absolutely. So, so I look like a maniac chasing someone down, jumping out of the car, beating someone up and deploying <laughs> strikes when you didn't get the whole picture of what actually happened. And, and, and that's a huge thing because the cameras, your cameras and video don't, don't deploy. Like they don't, it doesn't, it doesn't give you the whole perspective. It's a part of a chapter. It's not even the whole chapter of the book. It's a part. It's just a few lines in the story of what actually happened. Um, I do think that they're good as far as, cause you know, when your adrenaline's flowing, as things are happening, if me and you are partners and we go into the same situation, my, my, my memory of that situation is going to be totally different than your memory. We'll have a base understanding of what happened, but me and you are going to observe different things because we're seeing so many different things. And we might even tunnel vision on one or two things and not notice other things. Yes. Right. So I think that it helps out there. But what I always said when originally, when we were deploying it, I'm like, this is the death of proactive policing because Again, you're 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 taking that scenario like like this, you know, you're taking a part of a video and you're making a judgment on a whole story. Right. Like you said, a whole scene, a whole thing that's playing out that no one understands except for a trained professional. And you're giving seconds of a video to someone to make a decision on. And to me, it's insane. And I said, this is ESPN. You know, it's ESPN. You know, all the old chiefs, the 60-year-old guys that are sitting up watching these body camera videos, they're going to decide the fate of a police officer, what was right or wrong. They were smacking people in the heads with nightsticks, leaving them bleeding on the ground and not even calling an ambulance and helping. They were awful cops. We were the best 
we were the best police to have ever done it. We've done it. We've done it rightly with integrity. We, we were the least corrupt department that's ever done this. And there and these guys are making a decision on what you should have done in a split second. Um, you know, how 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 would any human while their adrenaline's flowing? Your frontal cortex shuts down. Your your your, your cerebellum shuts down. Time slows down. You start to tunnel vision in on things. How could you have possibly known what that other guy did when he grabbed that hand for a split second? And and even if you could, and even if you did grab it at that one second, in the middle of deploying a strike, the strike's still getting hit. So again, we hold we hold police officers to the standard that. They're supposed to be perfect, and no one could keep up to the standard. Not even a robot. Not even a robot. So I, I think that there. I think, I think you're 100 right. I think that we need trained professionals that have done it, and we need them to be have done it currently. Not even just, you know, maybe, maybe me for the next three or four years, I could look at these videos. But after that, I need to go because rules and regulations change and all this. Mm. If you weren't out there doing it, you cannot be, make a rational decision on what's going on. Um, and, and again, that, that video should be taken into the totalitarian, the, the whole circumstance. The whole circumstance needs to be put together, not just that split second. And that's not happening. So I, I agree with you there. Um, any, anything else on the body camera that we missed you want to add on or? All right. Absolutely. You know, actually, so I remember to this day because it was to me, it was it was like a pinnacle moment in history. And I said, wow, this is the day my career had changed. It was June 2nd of 2018. That was the first day that I got the body cameras. Now, for someone that was just coming on the job and they didn't know anything else for them, I thought it would be easier to adjust. But for me, this is a complete transition. I was policing for a particular way for 14 years. And now that they expected me to transition, they gave you a 90 day grace period, but it wasn't enough to transition. And it changed adversely the way we conducted policing. So I remember running, being in charge of anti-police work and special operations, unit, special operations unit. I remember I had a big meeting with all my guys. I would have meetings quite often to, we would go over training and we would reflect on different moments and we would learn from it. But I said, Hey, listen, we have a major issue here. These body cameras have really changed the game of how we're going to do police work. And I always made my guys and girls read court cases. My guys were the best when it came to understanding uh, legal bureau bulletins or case law. And if the public wants to understand, case law is cases that were presided on nationwide by judges where they came up with a, a ruling, whether it was the, the actual stop that led to an arrest where if the police officers acted appropriately or they didn't. So this was these case law is so effective for an anti-crime police officer because you simulate how you do police work to these particular uh, incidents that have happened in the past. So that I mean, like I said, with policing, it's not one size fits all. We know that you will never do two jobs the same. That's what makes police policing so unique. I mean, I, I love in my time, one of my hobbies is fixing things. I like to do plumbing, you know, but I know when I fix a pipe, it's always the same way. It's always the same way, the same glue, the same way to clean it, the same way I build it. But with policing, I could have two different incidents and they will never be the same. And that's the dynamics of it. Uh, but I, I, I said to the guys in this meeting, we really have to 
have an overview and we have to slow down how we do police work. And it's unfortunate. I do think it's going to hurt the public, but we have to slow down because I have to protect you. We have to protect you on how we're going to conduct police work with these body cameras. And I felt up to uh, around the, the George Floyd era that we were able to evolve. But at that moment, George Floyd, up till now, it really changed the game where the body camera was looked at as for criticism, for punitive nature, and the understanding of real time really wasn't there. And I saw myself, the substantiated allegations really started to mount, and I couldn't uh, control it any longer. And, and it came a time where I said, wow, I'm really going to have to retire because I cannot keep these guys safe. I have a duty to keep them safe. And it's really inhibiting me from doing it with these body cameras. And I can't provide the service to the public that I know I can give them the value that I have with these body cameras. It's just unnatural. It's like being an actor all day. And sometimes we need a moment. You know, cops need that. And that's why you asked me, thank God I could talk after all these incidents and still be sane. Because we have those moments on the sideline where we joke with each other. But with the body cameras, it takes that away. So we're losing that help factor. We don't have that opportunity to joke around about even an ugly scene, but we need that. That's what keeps us sane. It's that sanity. And we're losing that with the body cameras. It's really hurting the public. It's hurting us. It's coming full circle. And um, we really have to explore this and keep, we need to send the message that this needs to be fixed. We all have to work together. It's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I think that, that you just, you just point, put out uh, what I, what, what what really is going on that be, it's being used for punitive purposes it's being yes. used for the wrong purpose you know you're out there you're going to stop a guy with a gun you do everything right but you tell him to drop the fucking gun or put your fucking hands behind your back or there's a conversation back and forth and you might have cursed yes without even you know because it's just it's so natural it's just natural forming you you know the people that you're policing half the time too um, and, and, and you're going to get brought up on, you're going to get punished, some form of punishment for an incident, for a non-incident, really for a non-incident. That's now an incident, you know? And it's like, well, wh- well why, why, why? Like, so who, who wants to, who's going to do this job? Who's going to go out there and be, you know, um, it's, 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 it's a scary, scary world, man. It's a very complete review, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. But it's. It's scary to the fact that you're going to be held to the highest standard ever. And at the same time, the perpetrator that you caught red handed on body camera is going to be released from the precinct in four hours uncharged 90 percent of the time in New York City. But you God forbid you broke one of the little policies that of the 10,000, you know, the, the patrol guides only set up to throw you under the bus when it's time to be thrown under the bus. That's all. That's all it's for. It's to, to completely exonerate the police department and put it on you. Um, I'm sorry. What were you going to say about? No, I think the civilian complaint review board has to understand that. I'm a firm believer. I don't know the psychology behind it, but I, I understand that sometimes using curse words, it's just these sensory things that really just put an emphasis on what you're doing. I mean, we all do it. If you're on a roller coaster and you're going down and you feel your belly up, you go, oh, fuck. Yeah. That's normal. And it's the same thing. When you're in a violent situation or a situation that has propensity for violence and you're getting that fear that's in your pocket and that fear is your friend. That's what keeps you safe. If we worked and anybody didn't have fear, we wouldn't want to work with them. But you may say, move the fuck back because it puts an emphasis and it also gives you some strength because we all have that fear. 
these are fearful situations. And I think the Civilian Complaint Review Board has to be more empathetic and compassionate to understand that. And that's where they need a law enforcement perspective like myself and yourself. So they understand that, hey, we're not being unprofessional, but we're putting an emphasis on a situation that we, you know, that where adrenaline starts to kick in and where you feel your muscles starting to tighten. And you're in a situation where you're preparing for battle because it may be just that. You're about to arrest someone with a legal firearm who has a history of violence. We have to approach this. We have to get our bodies ready for it. It's a natural response. Absolutely, yeah. And that, and that, and that could alleviate, you know, we talk about de-escalation, right? And my <laughs> ability and your ability to show, to show confidence and, and, and posture in, in a, and be dominant in a situation where that could potentially be violent will de-escalate a lot of situations, right? Locking up, locked up a lot of guys that resisted arrest. If it was me and uh, Big Lance or Big Mike Langan or a bunch of big dudes jumping out of the car, everybody works out. The guy that resisted arrest 20 times, guess what? That day, he didn't resist arrest because he, he sized us up and he's like, you know what? I'm not going to win here. I'm not getting crazy. You know what I mean? If, you, if, you, if you're in this situation, hi, sir. Please, sir, you look timid. You sound timid. You know, when they know you're not playing, that's a de-escalation right there. Get on the fucking ground. Do do what I fucking tell you. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and that, and like, yeah. And, and, and the only, and, and that, that shouldn't be a non-disciplinary issue. It shouldn't even be brought in. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts now on this new matrix that the police department put uh-huh. out? I, I, I read through it real quick, you know, and I was like, this is bullshit. I was like, who, who, who agreed to this first off? Who agreed on this? What unions? The unions have no response to it. And my, the first one I went to, I said, you could be fired for hate speech. And I'm like, what the hell is hate speech? Is it, I support Donald Trump. Is that hate speech? I believe in the Second Amendment. Is that hate speech? I like police officers. I think Blue Lives Matter. Is that hate speech? You know, what's hate speech like who do, and who gets to define what hate speech is? And, you know, th- they had no answer on that one. So wh- what are your thoughts on the disciplinary matrix? I'm glad you mentioned it. So I always teach my guys. I have this famous uh, little little ditty that I always tell my guys. And, and I really think this this is for life. And I always tell them that competence breeds confidence. And what that means is you have to be comp- competent. You have to know your job so that you're confident to do it. So. Once I started facing all these charges from the civilian complaint uh, review board, I had to do my own homework. I had to be competent in the disciplinary process so that I could be confident that I could successfully combat these charges in the administrative trial. And so what I learned is I depicted and I tore this matrix apart piece by piece. And I read it so many times. And what the public has to understand and the police officers that really haven't read it yet, and they need to take the time out. Police guys, I encourage you always Read the stuff. That's the knowledge that you need to be an effective police officer. You have to read. I tell these guys always, read, read, read till you're blue in the face. And what, I, and what, what the public has to understand is the more, success, more successful you are as a police officer, the more rank that you hold, the more experience, how this beco- you become a victim of your own success. This is considered an aggravating factor in the disciplinary process in the matrix. So there are three categories three caveats to this matrix. And so what the public understand, if I had, if I had three buckets and I could show you one, two, and three, if I had a middle bucket, this middle bucket would say presumptive. What that means is if you're in a situation and it's substantiated, 
this is considered the automatic penalty. So let's me if you stop someone and you had no authority or you found them no authority, it says three days. So the presumptive penalty is three vacation days that you lose. Now, to my left is the mitigating factor. And to my right is what's called the aggravating factor. So a mitigating factor could be, yes, you're substantiating these acts, but this person you dealt with was resisting. So we're going to lower the penalty. There are mitigating factors to reduce that penalty. And I find it hard that that we'll see that often. What we're going to see and what I've saw is the aggravating factor. So what what creates an aggravating factor is if you have rank on the job, experience, knowledge, the perception is that you are supposed to know, you should know better. You have 10 years on the job. You're a lieutenant. You should know better. So for that reason, we're not going to we're not going to penalize uh, penalize you by three vacation days. It will now increase to nine days. So I really think that this matrix is flawed, flawed and it's really going to hurt the veteran experience that we have. And that's one of the contributing factors to uh, making a decision for myself and other experienced police officers, one, to retire or vest out or just to leave police work on the field and find these administrative units. So you don't have to face this type of discipline. So uh, what, what, and this is my firm belief and I'm seeing it. What the civilian complaint review board is doing is they're generating histories for police officers like myself. So up till 2018, I only had one substantiated command discipline, but from 2018 till now, they substantiated every case and they were all evaluated after this matrix was implemented. And so even if they understand that I might be in trial, they're building a disciplinary history by saying, hey, he has six cases substantiated. So the seventh case, this one, we're going to ask for termination because he has aggravating factors. The aggravating factors are a disciplinary history that CCRB has generated. He's a lieutenant. He has 18 years on the job and he should know better. That is fucking scary. It, that, it is scary. That is scary. And honestly, I'm glad I'm glad you pulled the trigger and you got out because I, that was that's why I went out. And and you know, like I look like a superstar on paper because I wasn't policing in 2018. <laughs> you know, I look like a superstar on paper. I have no complaints. I have a few unsubstantiated CCRBs before CCRB had the authority that they had. Um, and you look like. You look like an awful person, right? And they're going to use all of those factors against you when in reality, yeah, I was doing administrative work and I always would I, – I, I did a lot of great work in, in my administrative roles. But you were doing what the people of New York pay you to do and you look like you're the bad guy and I look like a superstar only because I stepped away. I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this. This did the whole way that the, the politics of the city's okay. changing. I didn't see a win-win. You put the win-win. You were like, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to stay in the game. You you kept doing what you signed up to do. You you know, I I read extreme ownership, and I took it to the point right when I said, you know what? I'm like, I can't own this anymore, man. I just I just right. can't I can't own this anymore. And I stepped away, but you continue to own it. You continue to say, well, 
I'm going to be the guy that's going to go out and change things. And I'm going to continue to keep the residents in New York City safe and train the young guys and, and do what is effective, what you knew to be done. And you got peppered up with complaints. And now all of a sudden, I, I didn't realize it was all from 2018. That's insane. That is so it, it shows right there. Like, yes. that's, it's, you, like your, your career is a great case study for anyone that wants to see what, you know, the correlations with the spike in crime, with the, the stepping away of, of police officers. Why are all these proactive police officers? Why did they take a step back? What years did they do it? Why, when did arrests come down? Why did guys that were proactively making arrests throughout their career stop making arrests? And, and, and that's, that's, I, I'm glad you shared that. That's uh that, that it's scary. Well, it's scary. I'm a firm believer. And we talk about, so you have to be strong to do this job, right? To be a good leader, to be effective, to do proactive police work, but you're only as strong as the support you get. So we're not getting the support from our leaders from the upper echelon and from the politicians. If you build a house and you can have strong walls, but those walls will only stay up as long as those beams are in place. Those beams are support. And it's the same thing for policing. You're only going to go out there and be as strong as the support that you get. So I, I saw as, as, as the charges were mounting up, the police department was really frozen. And they were really timid to come out and publicly defend, defend myself in this particular case and the fellow officers. The police department has been very quiet when it comes to this. So I didn't feel I had the support. I did not have that support beam. So I made the determination that it was time to retire. I didn't want to do an administrative position. I wanted to help in the facet that I was doing. My observation skills were getting illegal firearms. You know, that was my, that was my forte. And, and uh, that's what I wanted to do. So I said, you know what? I could retire. I could get a new lease on life and find a way to be contributory to the community. I want to help fellow officers. That's why you and I are engaged in this conversation. And the message, I want to, I'm not vengeful towards civilian complaint review board. I want to help them so that they can do proper investigations, so that they, they can actually help police officers, so they can actually help the public that they claim to help. In my particular case, and I own them, I have 30 complaints. And it, it accumulates to 115 complaints. Each one has a numerous amount of allegations. But they're 30 separate incidents. But in my third, every one of those cases, was a person of interest and they were placed under arrest. So I, I want the public to understand that these weren't just people that I had an interaction with uh, on the street by chance. It wasn't a conversation. These were, were people that were placed under arrest. Uh, I can't tell you if all of them were convicted or not, but they were brought to face justice. And in turn, the lawyers uh, had pushed complaints. People like Jose LaSalle had uh, really driven my name out there to accumulate these complaints. And with the matrix and the extension of COVID, all my cases were from 2018 till now. And they all came at once. And, and that was to really weaponize the matrix. That's what I believe civilian complaint review board is doing. They're weaponized the matrix by creating more of these aggravating factors so that they could try. And I say, try to terminate someone like myself because I still had my firearm. I still was a good standing. I still was in full duty to do the work, but I couldn't. I was just totally handicapped to go out there and be successful in getting these illegal firearms. So at that point, I made the determination, it's time for me to retire. And, and, and I'm very comfortable with that decision, and I'd like to help in other facets if I can. So it's interesting what you said there. It really is. So you, you had said it earlier. You, you had said it earlier. You know, you're never going to deal with the same situation twice even if it even if it's a very similar scenario 
there's going to be thousands of differences in that scenario. But yet, they're all going to be judged the same exact way. And, and, and so the whole process in that part is, is just it's, – it's unfair. It's punitive. It's, it's not meant to help anyone. It's only to bring discipline on the cops. And I do believe the same way the public had an issue – with stop question and frisk and broken windows theory. And, and I, I've spoken on this a million times. I do think that those were great tools. I do think that weaker cops deployed them wrongly due to weak leadership at the top telling you, oh, go get 2250s, go go make five arrests a month, whatever that, that number was. And really it caused incidents and arrests to happen that probably shouldn't have happened. Although I do believe in, in policing minor crimes, I do believe that's the way to, to a safe moral society where you could walk around the street and not worry about being shot and deter, deter violent criminals from uh, carrying firearms. Um, but this is it's a scary dude. It's it's actually scary what you're saying. And for for about a year now, I've been saying that Eric Adams is an idiot, and I could turn the city around, and you know all this other stuff. And I'm I'm actually thinking now that if 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 like for some reason somebody that like me and you that 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 thinks the way we do, that would train the way we do, steps into the police department and steps into the the as the mayor in three years, I think they're gonna have a big problem. Even if they get the laws changed, even if they get the DAs on board, because they're not going to have guys like you to train and they're not going to have guys out there that even know how to do how to properly enforce. Like, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know if you guys are going to call us out of retirement. You know, uh, you know, I'm going to charge you a lot more at that time um, to do it. But, you know, I don't know what what they're going to do at that point. But it's 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 a scary notion. We've been going on about two hours now. Um. I think I want to end this and then okay. we could do a part two. Are you all right with that? Sure. You know, absolutely. I think- I, I, I'd love to elaborate on that one point that you said, if I can real sure, quick. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate, but what we notice now is because of the, uh, the transition, the, the de Blasio era. And now here we are with mayor Adams. We have cops. Unfortunately, they have about eight years on the job right now and they have zero idea how to do police work. They have no idea because they were trained to do this community type policing, which is completely inadequate and ineffective. And they don't understand of how to do police work. For some of them, the handcuffs are there just for show. And I know if for some people, it may sound like an ugly thing that, yes, we handcuff people, but it's necessary. This is how we bring people to justice so that we can keep communities safe. For some people, they face justice and they do time to get re- rehabilitated. And for some people, it's a scare enough to, to help a community, but it's a necessary tool. And that's how we help the community. Hugs and ice cream, it only lasts so long. It, it seems nice. It's great for photos. But when we dig down deep, it's not, it's not what penetrates these communities and really helps these people. No, yeah, I just had a guy that ran for Congress, uh, Brian Robinson, Democrat, and he said something that I think will stick with me forever. He said, we wouldn't parent our kids the way that 
the city is is treating criminals like we wouldn't parent our kids this way you know your kids acting up you're not gonna be like okay honey you could get whatever you want let me get you some more ice cream oh you know oh let's let's try to understand the root cause of why you're feeling this way no sometimes consequences need action you know and i and you know like you know they talk a lot about uh criminalizing poverty and i'm like that's it's so not the case it's just setting a standard for social norms and what's acceptable in society and when we break out of those norms um there has to be a consequence for it like a a night in jail for a minor crime whether it be smoking weed uh graffiti whatever it is that will deter probably 75 percent of the kids whether they go charged or uncharged down the road but there needs to be a fear that possibly you could go to jail right now they don't even have that fear and that's kind yeah. of what I want to get into on part two. I want to get into all this. I don't want, I, 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 this is a great conversation and I learned a lot here and I think that the audience did too. So I definitely want to continue this. I, I, I normally go 10 to 14 questions about someone's career, but you have a lot to offer. I didn't even Thank get you. through, I didn't even get through half of what I want to ask you. <laughs> so, you know, you know, so if you don't mind, I'd like to end here and then no bring problem. it right back on. I want to thank you for the opportunity, brother. It's always been a pleasure. I'm super proud of you. You've been a voice out there for the fellow cops, for the people. And I hope the job understands that you love the job. And what you're doing is necessary. And you've done a great job, man. I'm super proud of you. I'm impressed. I'm proud to know you. I'm proud to be a friend. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. But don't go nowhere, man. Like What you're doing is important. This is... This is very – I've been speaking out about, you know, the COVID policies and, and the lack of representation in, in the department currently and, and, and our lack of political voice in the political arena. We're not respected in the political arena. Um, so I've, I've been weighing in on that. But, uh, you know, I, I you know it, it's absolute honor to have you on. I thank you for taking the time to sit here. And, again, this is a continuation of your service. You have nothing to gain by coming out and talking about this. You've been demonized by all means. Most people would just ride off into the sunset and say, you know what? I made my money. I did my time. I'm going to put it behind me. But I could tell you still have that sense of calling about you and that you, you, you didn't leave the way you wanted to leave. And I don't, I don't think you would have left if things were different. I think that you would have been so, a big chief on this job and you, cause I know you care. I know you love the job. I know you love the, the people, you love the city. Um, and, and it's very apparent. So I, I appreciate you taking time to sit, sit down and talk to us. Um, and I don't want to cut you off. I really, I do. I want, I want to keep going with these questions. Well, so uh, if you know, so just hang out, hang out with me for one second. All right. You got it. <laughs> 